The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. But listen anyway. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. We're bringing you more of Subgenre Season 2, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel. On Subgenre, you get insights and discussion about films from the movie subgenres you forgot you loved. In our second season, we're exploring movies about those can't-help-but-love-them bandits who steal an equal number of dollars and hearts. We call them Charming Thieves. In this episode, we've got a subgenre first, drawing ourselves into the world of 1970s Japanese animation. There's a swashbuckling hero, a princess locked in a castle, a dogged inspector, mindless goons, and an ancient mystery to be solved before it's all too late. From the mind of legendary animator and filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki comes this 1979 action-adventure comedy tale of a womanizing thief in the mood for lasting love. Some call it Rupan Sansei, Karyosoturo no Shiro. We call it Lupin III, the Castle of Cagliostro. And joining me by Zoom from Los Angeles is a return guest host. She is a writer and producer of animation at Noggin. It's Mary Thurman. Welcome back to Subgenre, Mary. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. I am glad to have you back. And I was going to say, you were (laughs) here in season one and got through talking for a very long time about (laughs) K-19, The Widowmaker. I think it was in episode six of our first season. I'm very glad that you're back for this one because, you know, as we mentioned, you work in animation and this is the first animated movie that we have talked about on this show. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be a part of any sort of animation first. When I say you work in animation, you're writing and producing at a pretty cool place. Yes. No, I'm working over at Noggin. Some people might remember Noggin used to be like its own channel. Now it's purely preschool educational animation. So basically I'm finding like funny ways to teach the babies how to read. It's a real honor. I'm I'm happy to be moving towards the creative end of things. And as we're moving through talking about this film, I want you to chime in whenever you can about the process of producing and writing animation as it relates to this movie, because quite honestly, my knowledge there is pretty limited. I haven't worked in animation very much. I am so excited to just come on and get to fulfill this like expert role. It's kind of a a new thing too, because Josh, you're so well-versed in film. So I'm just going to come and be like, well, you know, push up my proverbial glasses and use a good well actually on you at some point. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) And let's talk about this film. Now, it goes by a few different names. I think I've seen some places it's just called the Castle of Cagliostro. Some places it's called Lupin the Third, colon, the Castle of Cagliostro. Some places it's even called things different than that. For our purposes, we're going to refer to it as Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. But tell us a little bit about this film. Tee it up. I also am not sure if I'm saying Cagliostro correctly. I was saying Cagliostro until right before this record. (laughs) So like, I'm going to go with your way and we'll just say that that's correct until someone corrects. It's Italian by way of Japanese. It's fine. (laughs) This is an important one. I mean, it's really intriguing. The Lupin franchise is huge overall. I mean, it spawned something like 11 animated features, several like TV adaptations. I mean, people have heard of it since, of course, the 70s here that we're about to talk about. You've got your, you know, Lupin, who's this dashing character, his gang of desperados and an intrepid cop who's 
all trying to struggle to free a princess from an evil count. I mean, what more do you want except maybe like a secret treasure that she holds part of the key to? And a hidden level that I can get to later and, and collect extra coins. It sounds exactly like a video game. This movie was produced in only four months. I mean, like it had a budget of 5 million yen, which is about 40,000 US dollars. And it was released in December 1979, grossing about 500,000 worldwide. It's the second loop in the third film after 1978's Mystery of Mamo. Wait, I got to back you up. In four months, they that animated is, a feature film. I mean, here's the thing. It's more common in Japanese animation, in the anime industry, for things to have, you know, smaller budgets and compressed timelines and things like that. There's kind of this whole discussion that's going on right now about fair artist pay in anime. Like, that's kind of a big thing that I don't know if we're going to delve into. But four months for a feature, that is crazy no matter where you go. That is a very short timeline. And define one thing for me before we go forward, because I, I really want to talk about this movie, but I want to talk about it with the right words, the right nomenclature. Oh, sure. Anime. Does anime uh -huh. equate to Japanese animation only or am I limiting that too much? Ah, oh, Josh, you've, you've just sort of opened up another big discussion in the art world because right now we're at a point where a lot of streaming services are producing Japanese style, but American made and written animation. And you know, there's a big question about what is anime. I use it to describe Japanese animation. I don't really use it to describe anything done in that style by American companies, but people are going to understand what you talk about. I'm just going to use it to talk about Japanese animation. Got it. And I am for all of those things, by the way, and kind of animation in general, I am a novice. Over the course of my life, that has not been a subgenre or a genre that I have gravitated to. You know, I've seen Ghost in the Shell and Metropolis and things like that, but I haven't delved very far into them. So this is kind of a new world for me. I'm excited. And that brings us back to our amazing movie we're going to talk about today. I'm not going to take you too deep down the rabbit hole. <laughs> no, but, and let's, let's actually talk about the people who made this, because the one thing I do know about anime is I am familiar with Hayao Miyazaki. Living legend Hayao Miyazaki. People know him from Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, all of his, you know, famous, especially Studio Ghibli films. This was actually pre-Studio Ghibli. This is when I believe he was working for Toei Animation because Studio Ghibli was founded in 1985. So this is his first feature-length directorial debut, and he co-wrote it with Haruya Yamazaki as well. Ghibli? Ghibli? Do we know? Okay. I say Ghibli. I've heard Ghibli. I think that people understand you either way. It's Ghibli Ghibli. All right. Great. <laughs> Now, I do, I'm sure there's a correct answer and someone can let us know. I have heard of a gentleman with a fantastic pen name, which is Monkey Punch. Tell oh, us a little bit about yeah, Monkey Punch. This film is based on the manga uh, and the pen name of so someone who creates a manga is a mangaka. But the pen name uh, was Monkey Punch. And that is the pen name of Kazuhiko Kato, who created this series um, based actually, which is very interesting. I learned this preparing for this on a French fictional character from the early 1900s, Arsene Lupin III was inspired by the novels and novellas written by Maurice LeBlanc about Arsene Lupin, the uh, sort of gentleman thief. I kind of came around to knowledge of that character, too, through this, which mm -hmm. yeah, I guess coincidentally at the same time, there's also the series Lupin that is out now, the French yeah. series with Omar Sy, um, who, if you yeah. listen to subgenre, we talked about Omar Sy last uh, season in The Wolf's Call. So, yeah, this this character kind of has some wide range. I'm terrible at French, but I live with someone <laughs> who speaks French. And so I can do Arsene, okay, I believe, Lupin 
I'm pretty sure. The third, I'm certain. These novels were published in the end novellas in the early 1900s. And in a couple of them, the author wanted Arsene Lupin to run into Sherlock Holmes and put it in the books. And it was hilarious because Arthur Conan Doyle objected to this. Maurice LeBlanc had to go back and just switched it to Herlock Sholmes and kept it in. One of my favorite literary facts now is just that there's these novels out there where Arsene Lupin meets Herlock Sholmes. Herlock Sholmes. It's the best thing. But no, yeah, this film has got some amazing voice acting. I know we both consumed the like original Japanese audio with the subtitles and it stars, you know, Yasuo Yamada as Arsene Lupin the third, <laughs> Goro Naya as Inspector Zenigata, Sumi Shimamoto as Lady Clarice de Cagliostro. Cagliostro? How did you say that one, Josh? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, we're doing it. And Taro Ishida as Count Lazar de Cagliostro. And honestly, I love love watching things in the original Japanese. I don't think that anything is superior. You can consume media in whatever language like you will most enjoy the media in. I think that the performances will always match the animation a little bit more perfectly in the original language. But you had some good voice acting in this one. It's very fun. You do. And you have great voice acting. You've got great directing. And you have some really nice art direction because this film, like even in the first few minutes of it, I'm looking at it going... I don't, is this the sound of music? Like what's happening? We we're in what looks like Italy and in doing some research about this as well, I'm looking at this and there is this Japanese concept of Akogare no Paris. And I'm sure Paris is pronounced differently, but Akogare no Paris, which kind of translates to Paris of our dreams. It's this, what does Europe feel like through Eastern eyes, sort of like we romanticize different parts of the East from a Western perspective. So I I found that really interesting. And this seems to lay somewhere in that concept. Tiki's delivery service kind of has that sense of those like idyllic European villages that may not really exist in real life, but you get the sense of like all of these forms of architecture that Europe is known for kind of all put together into this beautiful fictional version of Europe. For example, I mean, this is going to date myself a little bit, but like Oran High School Host Club, I'm pretty sure the school that they're in has Big Ben as a part of the school. Like there's just sort of these things that people will do to include famous and fabulous architectural choices that may or may not be accurate, but they're still beautiful. And that's always going to be interesting just to see, especially from, you know, like a more European perspective. You're like, this is gorgeous, but also where are we? (laughs) It's a very interesting package of elements put together of people making the film put together of a genre, subgenre that is just interesting to begin with. And so let's talk about our feature presentation. We are talking about Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. This is a film that starts with a scene I fell in love with the instant I saw it. The very first thing you see in big bold letters across the front of it is a Monaco casino. And we've got our main character, Lupin, and his buddy... J-I-G-E-N, Jigen, Daisuke Jigen, and they've just ripped off the casino. It's such a fun scene. I feel like they introduce you to the tone of this film so fast and furious at the beginning, just because, you know, you have this like master thief and his friend, but they're basically running outside. Like there's all these people who have witnessed their crime. They don't seem to have just pulled things off gracefully in the night. Instead, they just have these bags of money, like filling their car. It's like $5 billion. But instead of being caught by all these goons or 
or, you know, cops or whomever they are giving chase, they have loosened all the tires off their cars. There's one car that's been sawed in half somehow. It's just such a romp. Like you immediately come in and are like, this is going to be a, a romp. It's a fun time. It's a little bit Keystone Cops. It's a little bit Harold Lloyd, you know, with like the cars coming apart while they're driving and things like that. And it's also a little bit Blues Brothers, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Something about It's very fun. That's what I like about the start of this movie. It's like simultaneously you're in this beautifully animated film and then you get something that is like slapstick. Like, would you call it slapstick? I mean, it's, it's I think so. Much. The credit thing was prior to it is like pastoral and beautiful and everything. And then immediately you are thrown into this, like you said, a, a slapstick world that has an exclamation point at the end of it to where after all these cars have fallen apart and tires have fallen off and people have crashed into things and our guys have gotten away, the hood on the last car pops open and Lupin's left a note that says, keep up the good work. Honestly, you, you kind of were just immediately thrown into Lupin's like roguish charm. That's the thing I love about this subgenre is whether or not you should be cheering for like a charming thief, they are charming, right? Like they're, they're going to pull off a heist and then leave a note complimenting the people who can't catch up with them. I agree with you. And in the first episode, I said I wanted to tee up this season and here's where, you know, here's what charming thieves mean and charming thieves are going to be these people that you just can't help but love and they have a swagger and they do all that. And Lupin absolutely falls into that trope of the gentleman thief, the charming thief. They're in this tiny Fiat. It's like a Fiat 500. Like money is flying out the windows and they do not care. But, you know, while like being blinded by money driving down the road, Lupin looks at it a little more closely and he's like, oh, no this is counterfeit. These are worthless. And then his sidekick, Jigen, is just like, that's impossible. This is a state-run casino. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, Jigen's beside himself. They've gone through with whatever this heist is. (laughs) They finally filled the car with money and gotten away, and Lupin's like, ah, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. It's all fake. I know. Can you imagine? There's, like, this whole scene that we haven't seen of them doing this whole heist, and he's like, yeah, you know, on to the next one, because this is gothic bills. The gothic bills are, I think he says maybe even in that scene, like, these are not just your any old counterfeit bills. These are essentially the top counterfeit bills that ever existed. They're the type of counterfeit bills that can make their way into a Monaco casino because they are already inside the stream of currency. Yeah, so they toss all these bills out the car. All the cars on the highway behind them, they don't know they're counterfeit bills. They All they know is that there's money flying all over their windshield. So they're streaming money all over the highway. They manage to get away from whoever was chasing them and off they go. And Lupin says, look, I got this idea for our next job. The next scene is them pulling into essentially an Italian mountain town is what it looks like. We are informed that it is the Grand Duchy of Cagliostro, the smallest state to be a UN member. So basically they've come from Monaco, tiny city state, and now we're in Cagliostro, tiny city state. Yeah, I was getting kind of like Liechtenstein vibes from Cagliostro, just being like, oh yes, we're just going to assume that there are tiny countries in Europe we've never heard of. The Grand Duchy is where these gothic bills are coming from. And it's honestly, it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle of Europe somehow. (laughs) It's like anyone who comes in to snoop around about these counterfeits is never seen again. And of course, the minute they get into this place where we're told, hey, if you ask too many questions here, you're going to disappear, they get a flat tire. And so they are stuck on the side of the road. Of course, you've got Lupin, who is always laid back and not caring about anything. And you've got Jigen, 
who is just slightly less so, and Jigen loses the rock, paper, scissors game. So he's got to go change the tire. And what I find funny is while Jigen is out there changing the tire, Lupin is kind of showing some character, and he's laying out across the Fiat, smoking a cigarette, you know, one leg kicked out over the hood, just kind of chilling while his buddy is changing the tire. This is what he does. He doesn't take anything very seriously. I love the characterization early in this film because you just get a sense of him so quickly without having to describe anything. It's all visual. But yeah, no, while Jigen's changing this tire, immediately a woman in a white dress and a tiara, she looks kind of like a princess. She just zooms past them in a red car and then there's a car of goons who just zooms past right after her in hot pursuit. So they take off after her. I mean, what else are you going to do? You're a person who's drawn to action. You take off in your car filled with, I think it's an ashtray just full of cigarettes and a backseat that's full of empty tin cans of tuna and instant ramen noodle box. You can tell (laughs) they live out of this car. They are in hot pursuit of whatever this red car is that sped past them and the car of pursuers. And of course, you know, driving that car is the pretty lady. Jigen asks Lupin, so, uh, you know, in this battle, who are we going to side with? And of course, Lupin's answer is the woman and Jigen's response is, yeah, of course it is. It's pretty great to have that type of friend who, when you see a car chase, will immediately hop in the car and chase the cars before knowing whose side you're on. Like, you can tell that they've been working together a long time. <laughs> yeah. When in doubt between uh, siding with the the guys with guns in one car and the, the pretty lady in the, the red convertible, you side with the pretty lady. Siding with the pretty lady in this instance means getting into a gunfight in the small duchy you just barely got in via disguise. It does. But they, they're trying to, you know, shoot out the goons' tires. Like, that seems like a good solution. But the tires are bulletproof. So the goons start lobbing grenades. I, I called this a romp earlier. I feel like that just keeps going at this point because some of the camera angles we get, some of the, like, chasing and shooting bullets at each other and their cars are driving up onto the cliff beside each other. It, it is just, like, a really fun chase scene. Well, the- uh, Escalation. Wait, the escalation, though, is we go from, hey, I got a pistol and I'm going to shoot out your tires to these dudes throwing grenades like (laughs) there's no ramp up. It's just instantly we're in full on warfare. It's so quickly escalating. And then it escalates again because Jigen realizes, well, you know, the guns I normally use, they're not going to work. So I have to bring out the like this large anti-tank gun, this enormous sucker. Maybe that'll pierce the tires. And of course it does. And the goons crash and there's big explosions. They're like, oh, great. Like we sided with the woman. We've stopped the goons. But now the woman in the car they see has fainted. And the car is still going, like her foot is still stuck on the gas. And so now they're in this car chase to stop this woman from careening off a cliff. And so what does Lupin do? Well, they could do a couple of things. I guess you could do a little pit maneuver on the car. I guess you could maybe try to pull in front of it. No, we don't do any of that. What Lupin does is it's like, Jigen, take the wheel and jumps from his car into the car that is out of control with the woman in it and takes the wheel, saves her at the last second, right? Looks like everything is going to be fine until the car keeps going just that much, tips over the edge of the canyon, and they both fall to their doom, and that's the end of the movie. Of course it isn't. Roll credits? (laughs) And roll credits, no. Of course he has a gadget, and he uses, uh, what is it, a grappling hook or something to kind of keep both of them suspended in midair and not fall into the river and die. You know, listen, Josh, he's a gentleman thief, so of course he has, like, a wrist grappling hook that's, like, always in his sleeve. You know, you got to have your cool thieving gadgets that then you use to save strange women in red convertibles. You do. If you have been suspended from 
the, the wrist grappling hook. You've been knocked out. You wake up and find yourself swinging, I don't know what it was, you know, 50 feet or whatever, 100 feet over the river. You panic, which is exactly what this young lady does. He, you know, has to sort of keep her from taking both of them off the rest of this cliff, guides them to the ground. Everything is going to be fine. But just as they get to the ground and everything is going to be fine, the branch they're attached to breaks. He's knocked out and uh, rendered unconscious. There's so much here, Josh. It's like the pacing of this film thus far is like you come from this pastoral change the tire to this insanely high octane, but like fun chasing and then everything's safe and then the branch breaks. There's always almost like a follow up punchline to each moment. It either escalates the tension or it's just like a funny joke and Honestly, what I love about Lupin here is that he can take a hit. Here comes the Harrison Ford comparison, but it is very much like, you know, the early Indiana Jones when he gets punched in the face and has to just win by being clever. Like Lupin saves the girl, but then the branch breaks and he gets knocked out. Like there's something very charming about the fact that he is roguishly imperfect and also like failed to be completely suave in this scenario. He tried, but you know, when a branch falls on your head, what are you going to do? Well, you lay there. And as you're laying there, this uh, young lady tends to him as best as she can. But uh uh-oh, here comes a boat full of goons coming her way. So she has to get out of there as quickly as she can. She makes sure to say she's sorry before she runs away. And unfortunately, seconds later, when Lupin awakes, he finds that she's not there, that she's been taken on this boat. She's gone, but she has left something behind, which is her glove. And as he is examining the glove inside, he finds something that's going to take on some significance a little later in the story. What's in the glove is this lady's signet ring. And it is got a very distinctive crest. It's like a a goat with a tail and horns. And you can tell that it was some sort of like important family crest, though. Like it's they've given us a lot of clues here visually that like she's wearing a tiara and a white dress. You're like immediately thinking runaway princess. She has a signet ring. And also the fact that they have this car full of goons and then you're like, oh, aquatic goons. Something pretty big is going on for them to have this many people. It's a lot of like really good cues to the audience of what's about to come up next. And to top it off, it seems as if Lupin has seen this ring before. There is this moment of recognition. Okay, we found what appears to be a princess on the run. She has been taken. We're in Cagliostro. So what do you do? You get to the castle of Cagliostro as fast as you can, which is exactly what Lupin and G can do. We know maybe that we're on the right track because above the entry to what appears to be a ruined castle is a similar crest to what we saw on that ring. He clearly has knowledge of Cagliostro, of this duchy. He's seen this girl before. He knows to go to this castle, but his knowledge is outdated. Like this castle is abandoned. So he finds a groundskeeper and and he's like, hey, like we're looking for the prince's palace. Is this not where this is? And the groundskeeper tells him there's a fire seven years ago and it was a tragedy. The prince's wife died. And honestly, you shouldn't linger here. This is a tragic place. And so what does Lupin do? He lingers. He he can't help it. That's what you do. You linger. He can't can't help himself. But he's taking taking a look around. There's this kind of a giant lake with a gazebo on the other side where he takes some time to sit and think. And it becomes kind of apparent to us, I think, as an audience and and also starts to be a little apparent to Jigen, who is following him, that Lupin's got something circling in his head. Like this, something about this is familiar to him. Something about this is thought provoking. Jigen really wants to know what that is. And Lupin also makes this little comment about how, oh, like she's grown up now. And so you're like, oh, he definitely knows who that woman was that he just saved. 
And of course, Jigen has to put him in a headlock to get him to say what's going on. Well, okay, so... Up front, you have kind of the ruins, right? We found the groundskeeper. Hey, this is ruins. There was a fire. If you keep going a little further back, they end up at a place that is not in ruins. It's, in fact, a massive, put-together, really interesting-looking castle, which apparently is the new or the preserved castle of Cagliostro that they've been looking for. I really just want to take a moment to paint the visual here, because despite the apparent tragedy that happened there, the thing that's presented to us is a very peaceful place. And then when we find the, the current castle of the Count of Cagliostro, it is very isolated. It's in the middle of a lake. It is it is sheer on all sides. There's a bunch of turrets. It's a very different tonally from these sort of almost peaceful ruins that we're coming from. Lupin says that boat, talking about the boat that took the princess, the boat went into this part of the castle, a little cave or an entrance or a water. I don't know what I'm saying here, but the place where the boat went. He, he said some, something about this is uh, it went there just like it did last time. And so we have this hint of, again, he's been to this place or he is aware of this place. And we still haven't figured out why. But I think we're starting to understand, you know, well, he robs things. Maybe he tried to rob this. I love that this film, I don't think that it treats the audience like they're dumb. You kind of have this ongoing sense of history that, you know, maybe... You won't get an answer to until later, but it, it very much starts you in the middle of things. And it makes the characters seem more real in that way to not reveal everything all at once. But like you said, the boat full of goons is, you know, of course, like docked visibly by the enormous castle in the middle of the lake. So Lupin has to reveal to Jigen that, yes, 10 years earlier, he tried to figure out the source of gothic bills. And he was one of those people who came into the duchy and then got his butt kicked. I mean, royally uh, so last time that we get we get a flashback of him trying to steal these things. And it just it's a complete no go. <laughs> it was very rough. And again, it's another one of those charming moments where you're like, you know, you're a very imperfect person. But meanwhile, you have what they're calling an auto gyro auto. How are you saying that? It's an auto. OK, let me talk about auto gyros. There's an auto gyro, this red kind of like a mini helicopter that ends up landing on the castle roof, right? We see it fly and it lands on the castle roof. I know what an auto gyro is only because I watched Annie as a child. An auto gyro is what Daddy Warbucks flies and lands on the White House lawn when he goes to see President Roosevelt in the movie. And he gives the line, they say it can land on a dime, whatever that may be. That's the only reason I know what an auto gyro is. <laughs> and it it came in handy here because, of course, it's going to play a bigger part later. But you see one and you go, oh, yeah, auto gyro. I'm trying to like hold my laughter back because I've made some like various references thus far. And I just love that that's where we got the definition of auto gyro. <laughs> <laughs> and flying this thing, because we've seen it land on the roof of the castle, okay, getting out of it is the Count, right? This is the Count of Cagliostro. Steps out of this auto gyro into his beautiful castle. He's got his butler there, whose name I'm going to butcher, but uh, Jodot, Jodo, probably Jodo, J-O-D-O-T. Um, I was going to say Jodo, but I, I, I don't really know either. Yes, there we go. We're going with Jodo. The butler tells him, uh, boss, the princess, remember her? We found her. She's back here at the castle. She has been appropriately drugged. Creepy, creepy. And our count says, awesome. That's great. You know, those foreigners who were trying to uh, help her escape, go find those guys and dispose of them. And the princess, actually, I guess she's been drugged, but she hasn't been taken to the tower yet. Count takes her hand, says, I'm going to take you to a nice place. I'm going to take you up here and put you in the tower. And when he takes her hand, he realizes, uh-oh, 
the ring is gone. There are so many creepy vibes in the scene. Allow me to break them down for our listeners, sure. which is to say, not only does the Count have a just the most punchable face, he looks as though someone took Clark Gable and ran him through like an AI generator a few times to where it's just, it's uncanny valley. But then you have Jado, who honestly, like, here's the thing. I, I love all the character design that you'll find in anime, and this is definitely not the most extreme version of it. There's so much more out there, but Jado looks vaguely how I imagine like Igor would look if he yes. was a butler. He looks vaguely like he's been resurrected. He's got like kind of greenish skin, clearly very evil. And then also, but the princess is, you know, being taken to this sort of like creepy bedroom that's like almost childlike in design. But then when the count makes sure that the drugged lady is put in her bed, you're giving me like very pedophile vibes in this moment. Yeah, there is a lot that in hindsight feels very inappropriate about this movie on a lot of levels by a lot of people in the movie. But yes, this is the first but not the last of those, I think, as we go through. And it does feel, at least in this part, a little Scooby-Doo to me. Now I could see that because you have sort of the cartoonishly villainous people who are cartoonishly villainous, right? They're drugging a princess and putting her in a poorly interior designed tower. <laughs> but yeah, now they notice that the ring is gone and now they're like, oh, this is serious. It's not just a, a runaway princess. Like, we need that ring. And speaking of the ring, there is a town below this castle. It's not just the castle. There is a whole village that sort of surrounds this castle and Lupin and Jigen are down in it. They're at the tavern. Where else would they be? They are examining this ring, having a look at it. This must be important. People were after it. And Lupin notices that on the ring, there are letters from the Gothic alphabet engraved or inscribed around this ring. And it says, with light and shadow as one once more, it shall surely be restored. And then the date 1517. So plenty of mystery set up early on about what the hell is this thing and what's it going to do. But whatever it is has to do with light and shadow. As Lupin's trying to figure out, you know, he reads the Gothic alphabet, but he doesn't really know the significance of the ring. This waitress comes over and is able to tell him like, oh, that's Lady Clarice's ring. And, you know, the Lady Clarice, her photo is actually in the bar. It's of her as a young girl, but she just returned from the convent yesterday to marry the Count very soon. Everybody knows who Lady Clarice is. Everybody knows her so well that her picture as a kid is plastic above the, the bar in the tavern, which, okay, that's great. Everybody knows that she's supposed to marry the Count. Okay, I guess. She just returned from the convent and is going to marry the Count. Okay, so maybe I don't understand how convents work, but okay. And of course, in this moment of having a clue, having to decipher what's on the clue, having an informed person who can then tell you the significance of the clue, of course, you have the spy who is sitting nearby and listening to everything so that they can report back to the bad guy. I think this is, uh, and I could be wrong, but I believe this is the part of the film where we realize that the Count is really like the regent of the Grand Duchy mm. in a way. The princess, or the lady, rather, Clarice, her parents were the prince and former princess whose castle burned down. And so the Count is currently the ruler of the Grand Duchy, but the princess has the royal blood. He's, you know, not exactly a gold digger, but like a power digger. You're like, okay, he's going to get wealth and status from this marriage. Yeah. And again, by looking at him, you can imagine that this was his choice, not her choice. What a punchable <laughs> face. Oh my goodness. But at yeah. any rate, so there's the spy right. and Lupin notices the spy. So Lupin notices. And, Jigen... yeah, and that's that's the thing. Lup Lupin knows he's there. The spy's not doing a great job because both Lupin and Jigen go, yeah, there's a spy guy over there. 
And so they're very aware that they are being watched. And so they prepare as such. And that's a good thing. They, you know, get like a charming hotel room. But instead of, you know, completely relaxing, they're kind of making these preparations, like you mentioned. Meanwhile, assassins are scurrying over the rooftops. We just get these cutaways to all of these ominous figures in the night. You get the sense that Maybe the Count's order to Jado had something to do with this, but Lupin's mixing up a potion. It's a potion. It's metal being poured into a mold. This will come into play later. We're not really told what's going on there, but he's doing something in the room. Him and Jigen are just kind of chilling and talking while you've got these kind of, I mean, ninjas is the wrong word, but they kind of act the way that you would expect ninja assassins to act in kung fu movies, right? They're climbing across roofs and they're jumping from here to there and they're sort of surrounded rounding this place and eventually they're going to kick in every door and every window and come in and fight, which is exactly what happens. The good news is that, of course, Lupin and Jigen were expecting them. And so they are armed and ready to take them on. It is funny, the sort of like highly trained assassin trope, but it's especially in this fictional European country, this highly trained, definitely not Japanese influenced, uh, very European assassins burst in through the skylight. I will, a little spoiler for our listeners, skylights are very important in this film. There's a lot of skylights in this film. There are, aren't there? I don't know why I feel the need to point that out. But, you know, for those of you with that decorating choice, just know that it is a point of vulnerability because the assassin's burst in and a fight ensues and very quickly Lupin and Jigen find out that these assassins are very difficult to deal with. They've got spikes that come out of their hands. Are they people? Are they robots? Are they something else? We don't know at this point, but we do know that they're pretty formidable. So the fight ensues and so Lupin and Jigen are like, we gotta get out of here. They escape in their car. Meanwhile, back at the castle, there's a woman in red opening a secret passage. We get an introduction of this woman in a red dress and she's got the brooch on you know, looking like she belongs there. You know, this is someone who lives in the castle, but she is doing some sneaking around. And part of that sneaking around involves, again, going back to the Scooby-Doo reference. Like there in this first part of the film, there's a lot of Scooby-Doo, the sitting in the tavern and the deciphering of the letters on the ring and all of that. And then here she's taking, essentially putting her eyes through the painting, you know, so that she could look and spy on a conversation that's going on in the other room. And she is watching the Count and Jodo look at the counterfeit bills, right? They're a new ones, it seems, that have, have been printed up. Hey, we got the season 11 bills, you know, have a have a look at these <laughs> the and see what they look like. The latest counterfeits. The latest, the latest one. And Jodo is also there to apologize to the Count because apparently he was on this assassin uh, go get em trip which did not end up catching Lupin. Jodo, the zombie-looking manservant, is also one of these highly trained X-Men-type assassins, which is just like, what a complex character. I would love a movie just about him. He has a paper that is pinned to his back, so kind he of doesn't like a kick-me sign. Yeah, right. He's got the kick-me yeah. sign, exactly. <laughs> it's like a kick-me sign, but it's from Lupin, who I suppose, in having prepared, had time to write out like a cute little note that is basically an advance notice to the count of lust and greed. I will be taking your bride. Expect me soon, Lupin the third. And this is the second note that Lupin has managed to leave in this movie. Remember, he left the note for the goons inside the car, you know, keep up the good work when they're he had taken off their tires and sawed their cars in half. And this goes to something about the Lupin character generally, which is Lupin is a gentleman thief. Lupin leaves calling cards. And typically the Lupin character, I think if I've got this right, 
leaves the calling card in advance. Here is what I'm going to do. I am coming for this and there's not any way you can stop me. And that's kind of what we're doing here with the Count saying, I'm coming for your girl, dude. You can't stop that. It's very Pink Panther. It's very like a lot of things where the thieves have a calling card, but it's almost more audacious. Like you're saying, like he's sending something in advance. He's sending them a note being like, yoo-hoo, I'm on my way. And just is still going to be able to do these things despite the fact that he's announcing himself. And you read the translation from the Japanese, well, you know, the Count of Lust and Greed, which I think is great. I think the French is even better because in French, and my French is terrible, but the French that's written on the note, I think, uh, is Seigneur le volupteur, vous voulez votre fiancé, je me présenterai prochainement. And that's terrible French, but it translates to Lord Hedonist, I want to steal your fiancé, I will arrive shortly. That's baller. I'm going to need to find someone that I can call Lord Hedonist because that is an underrated insult. The Count is unworried. He's ready to wait for Lupin. He is ready to play the game. I think he's looking forward to it more than anything. And so he's preparing himself in the castle. Lupin is preparing himself in a different way outside of the castle in that he has called in reinforcements. So in addition to Jigen, he has called in another associate who is a samurai or dresses in a samurai costume. And I'm sure this is part of the bigger Lupin universe that I am not familiar with, but it's a character named uh, Goemon Ishikawa the 13th, I think is the full name of the character. And he is here to help them do what they need to do to get the princess back. Josh, I can give you a little bit of that Lupin context if you'd like it. Do it. Because Goemon Ishikawa the 13th has actually a little bit more of a complicated role in the Lupin manga Basically, sometimes he's the target. Sometimes Lupin's trying to figure out the method to make his special samurai sword. Sometimes he's a part of the gang. There was a period where Lupin was his mentor, but eventually he kind of joins forces with Lupin is what tends to happen. But in this film, what's maybe a little more pertinent is that he's the 13th in line of a family of like rogue samurai who can go off and do these special missions, etc. And so he's here to help them ready for a job. It's clear that Lupin has called him in to help them and he meets up with Jigen. Also arriving at the scene, though, is a Japanese police car. What's that about? Yeah, there is a whole Japanese police force, not just the inspector who we'll talk about in a second, but like a whole van of dudes in full SWAT gear ready to go at a moment's notice for whatever. And they pull up in front of this castle. Well, we find out pretty soon that this is the character of Inspector Koichi Zenigata, who is an inspector in Interpol. He has been called here to this castle looking for Lupin. Somebody has called in a tip. Hey, you know Lupin, the guy that you're always looking for, the guy that is your nemesis? He's here at this castle. You might want to come look for him and pick him up. So, of course, Zenigata is like, oh, cool. Shows up with all of his dudes to find Lupin. But what we find out is that Lupin is the one who called. There's this lovely game of cat and mouse. Like you can tell that, you know, the inspector has been chasing Lupin for a long time. Also, it gives you a sense of the scale of Lupin's misdeeds, that there's this entire convoy of Interpol that can show up. Also, the Count assigns one of his men, Gustave, to assist Zenigata. He's unfazed in part because this punchable, punchable count has friends at Interpol. As someone who can produce large amounts of money might be want to have. 
And also he reveals the castle's booby trapped, which is a big reason that he's not feeling scared right now. It's the introduction of this mechanism that's going to play out through a lot of the film. You have Lupin who is trying to defeat the Count and save the princess. You have the Count who has his own forces there to protect him in the gendarme that he has guarding the castle, who are these big dudes with spears and everything ready to fight off anybody who comes after him. You have Inspector uh, Zenigata from Interpol, who is there to find Lupin, who has his own forces. And his forces are in direct opposition to the gendarmes and Gustav, who are there to keep people out of the castle. The Japanese police force wants into the castle, and Lupin is sort of puppet mastering this as best as he can from the outside to keep everybody at odds with everybody else. And that is going to play a large part in everything that happens from here forward. I might be bringing this to too big of a conclusion, but it kind of speaks to the charming thief genre that you have a person in power who's doing something evil. You have your charming thief who we all have to cheer for, right? He's so charming and he's a thief. And then you also have the policeman who's always going to be chasing him. But in a big way, the person who's representing justice and morality is our charming thief. And he, like, he's the one whose side we can be on because he's trying to take down a greater evil. He's not stealing from good people. He's not going to, you know, be an evil person. He's here to rescue a princess from a horrible, very creepy man. And, you know, if the police can help him in his overall, like, very moral quest, then, like, more power to them, you know? Right. And we uh, talked about this. This whole moral quest thing or this crimes that don't really matter sort of thing in the last two movies that we've talked about this season in the Thomas Crown Affair. He is stealing art, which, you know, that's not a good thing. But again, it's sort of it belongs to the Richies, a Richie stealing from the Richies. And that that works in sneakers. You've got someone who is stealing a device that can break codes for government agencies. So it's not like the common man who's being hurt. It's the other that they're stealing from and giving to. And all of those sort of work within that trope. And this one works as well. It's a duchy. It's a count. It has no effect on anybody what he's doing. And it is a different different way of playing out that trope, but it is still the same trope. As we stand, though, we have these three forces, like you'd mentioned, and Goemon, the samurai character here, deduces that Lupin is the one who brought in Zenigata because he's going to fight fire with fire. So while everyone is distracted by the arrival of this inspector, etc., Lupin and Jigen will swim into the only way into the castle at Cagliostro. The only way in is this one source of water that is coming in from the outside to the castle. And it's not the easiest way to get in. There's water wheel gears they have to avoid. They're almost crushed by those. There's security cameras that they've got to get out of the way of. This whole place is one big dangerous booby trap and that's what they've got to manage to get in. But of course, they do that. They manage their way into the castle. Josh, you forgot about the lasers. There are lasers. There are lasers. Why would there not be lasers? Uh, In the meantime, Meantime, you know, Zenigata, he's at the engagement party, he's just eating, and then he notices this windmill outside the castle that powers a water wheel, and immediately chasing Lupin for so long, his brain jumps to the conclusion, oh, this is probably Lupin's way in. So as Lupin and Jigen just barely are getting into this castle, Zenigata is like rushing to meet them. It's a near-miss moment where Zenigata knows Lupin really well. Lupin knows Zenigata really well. They end up at the same place at the same time, which is Lupin having gotten into the castle. He's now essentially in the mouth of a fountain, and Zenigata is standing in front of the fountain going, I know that dude is here somewhere. I know he's here somewhere. 
somewhere and he's trying to, you know, maybe even peek into the mouth of the fountain to see him. And there's just this near miss moment where you think he's going to find Lupin. And it's right at that moment that one of his guys shows up, that one of the inspector's guys shows up and says, hey, boss, we've been recalled. We can't be here anymore. We got to get out of here. What? We've been recalled. I got to go talk to somebody about that. And he runs off right at the moment he could have found Lupin. And instead, Lupin is left to enter the castle unobstructed. Lupin climbing out of this fountain dresses like Inspector Zenigata. Almost like, you know, his Inspector Gadgety sort of outfit, right? He puts on the exact same outfit. And, you know, at first I was like, why are we doing this? And it becomes clear pretty quickly because Zenigata is trying to go up and confront the Count. Hey, dude, why did you call Interpol and have them recall me and my guys. We don't want to do that. We want to be here and find Lupin. They're being blocked, of course, by Gustav and the gendarme. There's kind of a standoff that's going on, and Gustav basically tells them, get out. You cannot be here. You need to leave the castle. Okay, fine, says Zenigata, and turns around and storms off with his guys, and they start to head out to figure out another way that they can do their job. Meanwhile, the reason that Lupin has dressed up like Zenigata is because he walks right up to Gustav and says, you moron, that person that you just told to go away and run away, that was Lupin in disguise. I am Zenigata, and you let the wrong guy go. Go get him. And sends them off on a wild goose chase. So, of course, you get the sort of castle guards immediately start fighting Interpol. It's, again, it's almost very slapstick because Lupin, disguised as the inspector, just moves on, just goes deeper into the castle. <laughs> yeah, it's this fight on the stage between the two opposing police forces. Zenigata manages to climb his way out of the middle of it because he knows exactly what's going on at this point and is trying to pursue his doppelganger in Lupin who has now made his way into the castle. Yeah, so he kind of pulls that thing that you'll see in cartoons or, or even in certain live action films where there's a big pile of people and then someone just somehow crawls out unnoticed. And he's, yeah, he's running after Lupin. Lupin almost gets caught by one of these booby traps, but he manages to escape it. Zenigata, not so lucky. And I just, I need to give a few details because, you know, the Count has mentioned that the castle is booby trapped, but here's probably the first instance that we see of it. The floor is actually a trap door. But not only that, it takes a picture of whoever is falling, like <laughs> mid, mid like scream. It's like they're on Splash, Splash Mountain. Mountain. It's legitimately Splash Mountain because like mid fall, they just take a picture so they know who they've trapped. The trap door opens up and this is a good several second fall. He's fallen into the bowels of this castle somewhere. We don't see where he goes, but off he goes, falls down a hole. No more Zenigata. Lupin manages to get away. We cut to the armory where that formerly seen spying on the Count woman in red is revealed to be Fujiko Mine, who Lupin calls Fuji Cakes. Love Fuji uh, Cakes. She's taking photos of documents. Her brooch is a fake. It's one of those like hidden cameras. And she's clearly, there's a lot of espionage going on. She's a fourth player that we have in this web. And then Lupin just comes up right behind her and scares her. Turns out she's his ex or some sort of former flame you get implied by the Fuji Cakes nickname, and they know each other. She, her mission has nothing to do with his mission, but both of them are people who seem to operate a little bit outside the law, and that makes them buddies, lovers, or other. She lets him know, hey, uh, you know that princess that you're looking for? She's over in the North Tower. I'm kind of doing my own thing here. I'm, I'm looking for whatever information it is I'm looking for. So 
Okay, what does he do? He climbs the North Tower. I think that you're really underselling the climbing part of this. This was one of my most stressful scenes in the whole movie. First off, I just love the introduction of Fujiko because she specifically is like, here's the information you want. Leave me alone. I'm espionaging (laughs) over here. Can't you see? And that's, I love that. I love that attitude. But not only is Lupin like, oh, let's get to the North Tower. The camera work, my fear of heights could never, Josh. Like just a dizzying climb over multiple turrets using, you know, a rocket or a grappling hook trying to get up to the skinniest, tallest, furthest away tower. And he's kind of that French guy that climbs all those buildings, like the guy that climbed the Arc de Triomphe and the guy that barehand climbs skyscrapers. That's sort of what this felt like to me in that Lupin is doing the impossible in order oh, to, yeah. to get up this tower and not doing it perfectly, which is the thing I liked most about it. But does, again, sort of play into that character moment of like, he is always one step ahead, but he might slip on a banana peel a little bit. And it's bad when you're on top of a tower. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's bad. I've heard that's bad. When he gets to the top of the tower, though, there is a personality change here for me in that Mm -hmm. before he's been kind of this happy-go-lucky guy and, you know, sort of devil may care and he's very suave and smooth. And he climbs into the tower, I think through a skylight. You talked about skylights earlier. It was through the skylight. Yes, through the skylight. Opens the skylight, drops into this room. There's the princess in this poorly designed room that she is in. And he is there to bring her back her ring. Lupin, who one would assume, and I think in other Lupin movies and TV shows and manga and the rest of it, is kind of a jerk a little bit or a little more rough around the edges here sort of becomes a little Prince Charming. You're right. It opens a, a new side of the character because you, you realize like he definitely knows her. We don't know from where yet, but that he has a certain tenderness towards this princess. And she's also like a woman in danger. Like he knows that she's scared. He's a man breaking into her room. And so he definitely turns on a different side of himself than we've seen. It sort of struck me in the moment because it it was so different from what he had been before. Before, like you said, he was Indiana Jones and here he just turns into Hugh Grant. He's given her rings and he's telling there he's there to steal her away and give her her freedom. And he's doing little magic tricks to make her smile. You know, all of these things that you don't necessarily expect from this type of person he's doing for this woman. This is really the first time he's he's met her and been conscious. It's interesting, too, because you get the sense from the princess. Part of the reason he has to draw her out in this way is that she thinks everything is hopeless. Like at this point, she's already tried to escape. She got pretty far. She got brought back in and she thinks that she's just going to have to marry the count. She's just going to have to do this for the sake of the country or, you know, for whatever motivation. But Lupin is using these little gestures to sort of convince her of his sort of motivation, but also of his abilities, like just to give her hope. And it works because in however long that, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it is that he's doing all this for her, you can tell that she has found somebody that she connects with. You can tell that she's found someone who is giving her hope. You can tell that she's found someone who maybe she could love. And that is wonderful, except for the fact that right at that moment, here comes the Count, spoiling the party. He knew this was going to happen. He knew where Lupin was headed. So he's here with all of his goons and says, basically, get him, my pretties. And here comes the assassins trying to get Lupin. Lupin is back to being Lupin, like, ah, I can take on all of these guys, whatever, no big deal. And it's sort of like, what is it? I've heard this a lot recently, but it's the Mike Tyson quote, like, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. This is the moment where... Essentially, Lupin gets punched in the face in the form of the thing he wasn't counting on, 
which is a trap door in the floor. And, you know, the count, victorious in this moment, turns to the princess and he tells her, honestly, revealing a lot of backstory here. He's like, we both have blood on our hands. You, because of your lineage, because of all these rulers of the duchy, you have blood on your hands. And the Count's family served her family and therefore did all their dirty work. And he has blood on his hands. So they are the two divided houses of Cagliostro. And they're about to become one now. It's a long walk to say, if I get together with you and you get together with me, we can rule this place. That's essentially what he's saying and kind of guilting her into do it, saying, you know, you think I'm bad, you're worse than I am. It's clear how she's kind of gotten to this hopeless state because it's clear that he's also like, I know you just came from a convent, but your hands and conscience, your whole lineage and history are stained with blood. And, you know, like in the midst of all of this, he reveals the the significance of the rings, right? He has a ring as well. And so when their rings come together, they will reveal this hidden treasure of their ancestors. Another mystery. And the rings, you know, you've got blood on your hands. Speaking of hands, there's a ring. Speaking of rings, the ring on her finger does something unexpected which is it starts to talk. But you remember when uh, Lupin was making that quote-unquote potion earlier, something pouring metal into something. It turns out Lupin has convincingly made a fake ring that looks exactly like the real signet, except for a hidden transmitter in it. And he is speaking through the ring to tell them the Count hasn't won. Let's back up, though. If we remember, Zenigata took a fall down a trapdoor from a place that was pretty high up from wherever the dungeon is that he was falling to. Lupin has climbed at least how many stories? 10, 12, 15 stories taller then wherever it was that Zenigata fell from, he's fallen through a trapdoor and fallen that far down, and yet he's still seemingly doing fine and being able to talk through a ring to everybody to tell him, ha ha ha, I'm still ahead of your plan. I don't know. It's He's looping. I guess that's how that works. The big thing that he's revealing is that he has the key to the puzzle, right? He has right. the real ring. The one that he gave to the princess was the fake one with the transmitter. And so now you you have this interesting thing. We get a shot of Lupin. He's got, of course, his like little wrist grappling hook that he's using to lower himself down. So he's not, you know, fallen an indeterminate number of stories because I love all of these trapdoors seem to be direct shoots into the dungeon, <laughs> which is the best part of all of them. It's the garbage shoot in an old hotel. It's just the thing that falls straight down to the dungeon where everything collects. Apparently lots of other people have fallen down before him because down in this dungeon, where he is and talking on this ring, there are all manner of people who have fallen and impaled themselves on these giant spikes that are down there in the dungeon that he has managed to escape because of his little grappling hook. Lots of people have fallen down these over the years and their bones are still there and he is wandering among them. It kind of turns very dark because you get a sense of like, this has been going on for years and years. These trapdoors have been very effective for a very long time and they're just bodies everywhere. And amongst the bodies, you have at least one other living person, which is Zenigata, who has been wandering around since he fell through the trapdoor. He's just looking for a way out. That's why this dungeon, besides killing you on the way down and hitting the spikes, if you manage to survive it, the other reason it's been so effective is apparently there is no way out of this dungeon. Zenigata's had a full half hour to wander around and figure out how to get out and has found nothing. Lupin already seems to know that there's no way out and seems kind of nonchalant about it. 
and in talking to Zenigata, yeah, you know, there's no way out of here. I think we're probably both screwed. Well, the thing, though, that he does have having the ring is he has something that the Count wants. So you get a sense that he's in some ways planned for this, but in other ways, you're like, did you mean to end up in the endless pit of skeletons? Like, not 100% sure on that one. <laughs> I'm going with no on that one. Probably no. So while Lupin meets up with his longtime rival slash foes and Agata, Goemon and Jigen are just waiting for a sign from Lupin. Obviously, they're not getting one because he is in a dungeon. He's in the dungeon and so are three of those weird assassins that have swam their way in. So there obviously is a way in. They have swam their way in to kill both Lupin and Zenigata. They find both these guys who apparently have given up and gone to sleep against the wall and dive on them to beat them and tear them to shreds, only to find that they have jumped on empty clothes that the pair expected that they were coming and have been hiding. And so they jump out and beat the crap out of the assassins. Lupin and Zenigata in their underwear just come out to fight these assassins, but there's three of them and only two of them. So they get the first two, but the third is about to go back and report what happened. So Lupin has to give chase underwater and just at the very last minute, he catches the assassin so they can't go back and report that they're alive. It's kind of a James Bond moment. And yeah, he manages to catch this assassin at the last minute. The guy couldn't get back and report on him. And there's a little hint of a piece of clothing that sort of floats, you know, into view and then is snatched back very quickly. We'll figure out what that's about in a minute. The Count and Jodo are waiting for these assassins to come back and let them know that everything has gone well and that the pair that they went to go kill are dead. And one of the assassins does come back and, hey, boss, he's holding the ring. But as the Count reaches for the ring... The assassin, who is Lupin in assassin clothing, pulls both these guys into the water, shuts the grate over their head, and Lupin and Zenigata have managed to get one over on the Count and Jodo and have trapped them long enough in this watery great place that they are able to find their way down into the catacombs of this castle and find really what had started off this whole caper in the first place, which is the giant printing presses for all those counterfeit bills. Zenigata and Lupin have just stumbled upon just a fortune's worth of counterfeits and they're holding it up. They're like, this is Japanese. This is American. It's clear that the Gothic bills hold the key to a lot of the world's currency in a big way. Like this is actually a huge problem, but we've forgotten about it for a while because we're like, oh no, the princess. Yeah, you do get a history lesson. You get, here's all of these big events in world history, right? Here's World War II. Here's the Great Depression. Here's all of these things that these bills in one form or another have helped contribute to and that this duchy has had control over world events because of what we're standing in front of now, which are these bills that they have been printing on these giant printing presses. It is a problem. It is a thing we have to fix. And you, sir, Zenigata of Interpol, need to be on this and fixing this problem instead of catching me, Lupin. Can we call a truce until this whole silly thing is over? And then we can coyote and roadrunner it after that. Is that a deal? Yeah, that's a deal. It is honestly just another way of showing the genius of Lupin that he's somehow, whether accidentally or not, it's kind of unclear, but he's orchestrated the perfect thing to get Zenigata to work with him, which is the the greater good, right? He's like, oh, you know, I know you've been chasing me for years. First and foremost, you're Interpol, you're police. Like you should care about the state of the world's currency. You should realize that I am actually on the side of morality and that you should join me at least for now. And these longtime 
longtime rivals are going to become short-time partners, and we're going to talk more about that when we come back. Let's take a break. When you're done listening to this episode, why not pick up a great book? Ask your bookseller about Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. It's what Publishers Weekly calls an offbeat and informative outing into the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Get the scoop on the murder, mayhem, and mystery behind stories like the thefts. Yes, I said thefts of the Mona Lisa. How the CIA impacted artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock. Andy Warhol's really odd time capsule collection. And the possible murder of Vincent Van Gogh. You'll find all of this and more in Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history from Penguin Books, written by Art Curious podcast host Jennifer Dassel. Visit artcuriousbook.com to find your copy now. That's artcuriousbook.com. We're back. You are listening to Subgenre, the third episode of season two, where we are talking about the film Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro with my good friend, Mary Thurman. Mary, you enjoying the conversation? I think that this is an unhealthy level of enjoyment and I need to calm down. But all in all, yes, fantastic time. <laughs> well, good. You are, I think, as we mentioned at the top of the show, a good person to talk about most things, entertainment and movies, but specifically animation. And we should talk about that and geek out. <laughs> awesome. So for today's geek out, I really just want to explore from your perspective and from mine, what makes a great animated film? Josh, can I ask you just to start this off? Like, what would you say might be your favorite animated film? Do you have an answer to that? Here's what it is. My likes when it comes to animation are relatively limited. I don't have a broad palette. So it is probably something, as much as I hate to say it, it's probably something Disney. And it's probably something early Disney. Don't hate to say it. Disney, (laughs) listen, Disney is responsible for so many advances in animation that cannot be ignored. Whatever you think of Disney, Disney as uh, corporate overlords. Don't let that color your your vision about <laughs> early Disney animation. I just feel like I should have a smarter answer than that. I should have, you know, oh, there was this uh, Italian animated short from the 1800s. But <laughs> I, I don't have that. Animation generally, I tend to like animation that feels like animation. I don't like as much animation that strives to feel and look real. So things like 3D animated stuff, like what was that terrible uncanny valley train animated thing? Polar Express. No. If I want animation, I want Bugs Bunny. I want Cinderella. Things that feel a little more like they are their own world versus trying to recreate the real world. It's a long way to get to saying, I don't know what my favorite animated film is, but it's definitely not one of those that strives to look real. Animation is a a medium. It's not a genre. So when you're talking about a great animated film and what makes great animated films, the answer is essentially going to differ for everyone. And I like what you're talking about, but like animation, because it is a medium, it is so 
unique. For example, I worked in animated TV development for a while and I still to some extent do. There's things that you can tell are meant to be animated. Like Looney Tunes that you're talking about, like Bugs Bunny, the sort of like slapstick piano falls on your head type of something that you're like, people in live action have done it, but it's clearly meant to be animated. You can have these sort of elevated things that aren't quite real, that fit super well into the medium of animation. And I'm with you. Like, I think that there's so many things that go into making a fantastic animated film. And one of them is sort of understanding the possibilities of animation, right? Like we've talked about the heightened action in this film, in this episode. That's part of what makes this just such a fun film is they're not afraid to sort of push the boundaries of reality. Right, exactly. I'm going to buy Lupin jumping from turret to turret in an animated feature. And I'm going to look at that and go, oh, isn't that wonderful? You know, there's this nice sense of freedom of him and his jackets flapping behind him. I'm not going to buy that as much in a live action film. I'm not going to buy that as much in a more realistically drawn or conceived animated film. I don't think. It allows me to feel the magic a little more without feeling like I'm being manipulated. That uncanny valley, right? So you have that space where something is real and not real, and therefore it becomes something of nightmare a little bit. And I think that embracing the possibilities, embracing the history of animation and what you can do with it, means that for some people, at least, some people really do, especially in the VFX world, people are doing fantastically, indistinguishably real things nowadays. And honestly, that's a little scary to me personally. That's wonderful. But I think for me, like some things that make great animated films, it's sort of like the things that make great live action films plus right. in the way that its story, its character, the possibilities in the visuals of animated films are just so broad. You can stylize in whatever way you prefer. There's some anime influences in Turning Red. There's some Sailor Moon references in Turning Red because you have so much potential Everything from Gendy Tarkovsky's Primal, which is like stylized, but also this sort of adult, gritty, survival-based narrative, all the way to, you know, what I'm working at at Noggin, which is preschool educational programming. You can kind of find whatever you want within animation, but the principles of storytelling are still going to be the same. You can just kind of plus whatever you're doing. For any kind of movie, animated or not, it is always going to come back to story. It is always going to come back to character. It is always going to come back to an engaging plot. And if you have all three of those things, like you said, animation's the mechanism by which all of this is being put together. But I agree with you. I like that it is what is possible plus. It's everything that's possible from your imagination. You mentioned magic, and that's kind of like, that's a Disney brand, right? Like even all the things based on folk and fairy tales is capitalizing on that animation magic, which is to say, if you want to make a realistic and gritty animated story, you definitely can. And there are instances, I mean, like The Breadwinner was amazing. That was Nora Tuomi film. And then even this recent Oscars, I actually haven't had a chance to see it yet, but like Flea was one of the nominees, which is a gritty adult animated story, right? It's very real, but like it does just give you so many visual opportunities to do things with camera, with style, with pushing stylization that would be at least cost prohibitive in live action, if not impossible. Unless you're going to pull a Mission Impossible and a Tom Cruise, you're probably not going to go to space for your live action film, right? Right. <laughs> Stop me when I get boring, but like, right? Right now, it is just this beautiful cross-section of, I mean, we had this explosion with streaming and people have also really been 
realizing a lot of potential of animation, I think because of streaming, because things that drive subscriber growth is oftentimes, I mean, preschool is super important, like anything for little kids, but also like people who are fans of things. Anime fandoms are so influential. Netflix has been making things like Castlevania and everything that has become very, very famous. And so there's at least been this period of time and we'll see if this sort of closes down. In some ways, you might say it is already as things become more settled, but everyone who's grasping for subscribers right now you'll see that through the growth of streaming, there's been some risks that have been taken. Things like you'll even see, I mean, this is based on a video game, but the Cuphead show is a beautiful visual exploration of like 1930s animation. And then you'll see things like Undone on Amazon Prime, which is a fully rotoscoped show. So it might hit you in the uncanny valley, but there's a lot of experimental things going on right now. And it's just a very exciting time to be alive. I think it's a perfect place to cap off this conversation. Great animated films. There are so many of them, and uh, we are talking about one of them here, so maybe let's get back to our future presentation. We are talking about Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro. When we left off, we had our two former enemies in the form of Lupin and our inspector, who has been trying to catch him this whole movie, finding the printing presses in the basement of the castle and saying, okay, look, we're going to call a truce for now while we sort out how to let the world know about what's going on at this castle. But meanwhile, picking back up, we are back in the North Tower with our princess, who is there with the woman in red, who we've been calling the woman in red, who is Fuji Cakes, who is Hujiko, who is the spy that we have seen earlier. Our princess didn't know she was a spy, but she does now because Fujiko reveals herself to the princess. Hey, you know, I'm that lady who's been hanging out and taking care of you all this time. I am actually a spy. Oh, wait, I'm going to take off this uh, red dress as well. And underneath, I'm wearing camouflage or something underneath my red dress and brooch. I'm a spy. I am not your personal servant anymore. And oh, by the way, I used to sleep with Lupin. The princess doesn't have a lot of time with this reveal because smoke starts filling the room and it's coming from the printing press for all of those counterfeit bills in the basement. Oh, no. That can't be it's good for somebody bad. printing bills. No. And that's exactly what's happening is down in this basement where the printing presses are. Lupin and Zenigata are burning all of the stacks of counterfeit money that they have found down there. There's dollar bills, there's Deutschmarks, there's yen, there's Chinese money, right? There's everything down there and they're burning all of it. And while they are burning it, Zenigata is down there searching for the proof that he needs to bring down this counterfeit ring, which I don't know what other proof he needs. He's got stacks and stacks and stacks of counterfeit bills and the printing presses on fire as they may be. What is he looking for? Well, here's the thing about counterfeits is you have to have the plates, right? You need to have the plates that make the bills. All that to say, though, you're right. He has boatloads of evidence, but Lupin is currently destroying it all. So it's just a funny two-hander scene at the moment. But not only are they in the middle of giant flames in a counterfeit printing press room, they also steal the auto gyro. Yeah, which the, is the goons are here. There's smoke. The goons have found them. They're here to kill them or take them into custody or do whatever. What do you do when you got goons with knives for hands coming after you, you steal the auto gyro. Everybody knows that. Lupin's like, he hasn't forgotten about the princess. So instead of, you know, trying to deal with this subtly because he started this huge fire, he just buzzes the tower <laughs> with the auto gyro to try and go and get the princess. Hey lady, I'm out here. I know you're <laughs> stuck in the tower, but I'm, I'm going to circle until you figure out how to get out here too. The princess tries to get out of the tower. She's like, oh, there's that thief. There's Lupin. But of course, because everything in this 
film is kind of secretly bulletproof. She can't break the glass to get out. She tries a chair. Fujiko, who's now in camo, throws a grenade at the window. The window does not break. Grenades are getting a lot of play in this film. Everyone has a grenade secretly. And the princess is kind of like Ripley in Aliens. Like she's beaten on the glass with this chair. The chair is coming apart. The glass doesn't do anything. The grenade does nothing. So what do you do when you can't break the glass with a chair and you can't break it with a grenade? You wait for the guy on the outside to jump down through, say it with me, everyone, the skylight. Fujiko gives a rope and, you know, she starts covering them with machine gun fire. It's it's funny. She seemed like she was about to leave, but she gets like drawn into all the nonsense. Again, I come back to the Ripley reference. Like she is this badass person who is just like, you know, let's rock is firing on the goons coming through the door. She has managed under whatever this red dress is that she's been wearing the whole time to have ropes and machine guns and grenades and any other thing. Essentially, she has an arsenal hidden under this dress somewhere. And in this scene, everything comes out. Ladies, if, if anybody's like, why are you wearing such long skirts? Be like, gotta cover those grenades, you know? So at any rate, yeah, Lupin's on the roof and Zenigata's flying the auto gyro. There's just He's so made much going Zenigata on. fly the auto gyro. He knew how to fly, but then he had to bail to go get the girl and he's left Zenigata, who has no knowledge whatsoever of flying a helicopter, flying the helicopter. It's such a beautifully chaotic scene. And so Zenigata is doing his best, but it is not going well because the auto gyro kind of explodes. Machine gun fire hits the auto gyro. Lupin, you know, tries to run after it. He's unconscious. He falls towards the edge of the room. He's unconscious again. 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 Yeah. Again. This man, I swear, he must have a concussion at some point. But the princess dives out there and saves him just from going over the edge. And then Fujiko, who's been down laying down cover fire, she's up there as backup trying to stop Jodo, who has the, the big machine gun that's been shooting at the auto gyro and shooting at Lupin and shooting at the princess. She is trying to stop all that from happening, laying down cover fire. What stops the fire for the moment is the count first, first orders Jodo to fire on Lupin and the princess. And you think, oh no, this is the end. And he fires all around them and misses them. And at first I thought, how? It's giant cannon that he's firing at them and he's not he's not hitting them. But we find out it was done on purpose. You get this interesting, almost like a little moment, which also makes me want a Jado movie because I'm like, he does have some loyalty to the fact that the princess is the princess. Is it called Waiting for Jado? I just, I had to... <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah. he has little to the princess, but not enough to not drug her, but enough to not kill her. So the count's like, okay, princess, you've got a choice. Marry me or die and Lupin dies. And the reason I, of course, want you to marry me, I'm not going to say the quiet part out loud, but the thing that I need is I need that ring. That's really what I'm trying to get here by marrying you is I need that ring. You need to get that back to me. So she's got a choice. She can marry the count. She can die with Lupin. Hmm. Which one do you do? Well, it's a hard choice. It's a hard choice. She really has only known Lupin for a short amount of time. So she does what she feels like she needs to do or has to do in that moment. Go to the count. But before going to the count, Fuji Cakes gives her the hint of where to find the ring. Look, lady, you're going to need to find this ring if he's not going to kill you. You're going to find it under Lupin's collar. He hides everything under his collar. There's a story there. What have you found under this man's collar? I don't know. Probably another <laughs> grenade or skylight or something. But. He's, he's certainly meantime, hiding grenades. Yes. She's going to save Lupin's life by bringing this ring over. But just then, Zenigata 
Coming through, the flaming auto gyro shows up. Fujiko grabs Lupin. They hold on to the outside of this auto gyro and they get off the roof. The flaming helicopter appears just in time with, of course, Zenigata losing his mind because not only can he not fly a helicopter, he certainly cannot fly one that is on fire. And yet that's what he's having to do. But here he is. He's the deus ex machina that allows everybody to grab onto this thing, to fly off into the sunset to some degree. Johto is firing after them, blah, 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 blah. But as Lupin is escaping by holding onto the skid of this auto gyro, the princess, who had taken the first step to try to save him a second ago by giving herself up and the ring, now essentially throws herself over the machine gun so that he can't get the shot that's going to kill Lupin. Lupin is able to get away. Fujiko, who is also hanging on to the other skid, I guess, at this point when they're getting away, lets go and flies away on her own personal hang glider, which was also under that dress somewhere. I gotta get me one of these dresses. I, I think I might too, you know? And Jigen and Goman are there in the car just in time to drive underneath the auto gyro and let Lupin and Zenigata jump down in the car and the auto gyro blows up at the edge of the lake somewhere. Daring escape, but at a great cost. The Count has the ring. Lupin is indeterminately injured or unconscious. He seems to get hurt a lot. And back in Paris, Zenigata is just trying to get help from Interpol. He goes back to Interpol and is like, I have proof that Cagliostro is involved in all of these things. And they're just like, what proof? You know, we got these cameras of you basically attacking it with a flaming helicopter. And he's like, no, it's in there. Like, I promise it's in there. But it's a sovereign state. And so he's got to go back to Japan. And it's a weird kind of a time cut, this scene. Like, we've had this big action sequence. And like you said, Lupin's hurt. And we don't know what's going on with him. And Zenigata was in the chopper that went down and everything. And then the next scene... Here he is back in Paris and making the case to Interpol. So he has left with what seems to be mortally injured Lupin, left with the princess probably back in the poorly decorated tower where she started off. And with now the count having the ring that everybody's been trying to keep away from him in the first place. It was a little odd for him to go back there and make the case only to fail and have to be sent back to Japan. But there you are. The implication here, right, is that Interpol is corrupt. Like not only is this like a a sovereign state thing, it's also the fact that the count has in Interpol. And this kind of brings us back to the whole ethos of the charming thief. At least in Lupin, it seems to be saying the law and these institutions are corrupt. So basically, because of the corruption of institutions, only true morality and true justice can be achieved by like bending the law a little bit. And Zenigata is like starting to realize that he's the good guy, but he can't be the good guy because of his superiors. He's failed. He's got to go back to Japan because he doesn't have permission to come in and be the good guy. In the meantime, we are back in Cagliostro and we are at what appears to be a safe house of some sort where Jigen and Gomen are there with, remember the old groundskeeper that was uh, the person we ran into when Lupin first got to the ruins of the old burndown castle? Well, this guy is back and he is there having been tending it turns out, to Lupin. He has operated on him somehow to keep him from dying. And so Lupin's there. He's unconscious, but he is there in the room and seemingly still living. And there's a dog that comes into play. They're like, oh, like, thank you for helping us out. And the groundskeeper's like, I only did it because my dog likes Lupin. And my dog has only ever liked a couple of people. Like, this dog has very discerning taste. But Lupin, you know, wakes up and he calls the dog Carl. And you're like, oh, Lupin knows this dog. And the old man, the groundskeeper is like, no, 
nobody knows this dog's name except for Lady Clarice. Well, that's not true. Everybody in the house now knows the dog's name. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I guess up until that moment, maybe it was only Lady Clarice. But this is part of that larger picture, too, of where Lupin, remember at the beginning of this movie, had talked about having been here before, had talked about this girl having grown up. And so this is filling more out in terms of how familiar he is with the people and place that he is. Okay, he's in bad shape. What do you do when you're in bad shape? Well, you know, what is it? Feed a fever, starve a cold or something. Apparently he has a fever because the groundskeeper to make him well has brought every food he can find in a, you know, a giant cornucopia and presented it to Lupin who proceeds to eat all of it. He is stuffing his face with all this food. And I guess this is just part of the Lupin lore that like eating makes you better. I mean, I think that there's some of that that you can find in anime and, and various Japanese sources, but this is the extreme of it, right? Where it's just like, the more courses I eat, the better I will be immediately. It's very video game. It's Grand Theft Auto, right? It's like I can heal all the gunshots if I just eat this one piece of chicken or whatever. This, this is the movie that. version. That's, you know, they do have actually a ticking clock. The wedding is tomorrow. So he just better eat himself back to health. Yeah. Like and right that's now. one of the things that Lupin, by getting himself back to health so quickly, that's one of the things that he is able now to recall is, oh, what day is it? Oh, great. That means that the wedding is tomorrow. I am going to have to get back in really good shape after having almost died so that I can go save the princess because she's going to go marry the count tomorrow. And we can't have that. This groundskeeper, clearly kind of similar to the waitress, but in a more personal way, knew young Clarice. And she used to love plants. So she would go into his garden all the time, especially when the prince and his wife died, Clarice's parents, and she entered the convent. Uh, She had a little bit of a special relationship with the groundskeeper because she left Carl, the dog, for the groundskeeper to care for. So the implication is that the Carl, the dog, has smelled the princess on Lupin, and that's why the dog likes him, right? And that's... That's why he got medical care, apparently. And this gives us this sequence of where we get to go back 10 years and when Lupin was trying to steal those gothic bills. And, you know, we had gotten a hint of that early on. But now we get a little bit more of the picture, which was in trying to steal them the first time around. We said he got his butt kicked. Lupin got shot the first time around and had a pretty bad time of it. Crawled off essentially into some bushes to die and was found by a very young. They don't say how old she was, but she looks seven, eight, nine years old or something. She finds him and I guess nurses him back to health so that he can be here today on her finger. She was wearing a ring at the time, and that's why he was able to recognize it now in the present day. You get this sense the princess showed him kindness and essentially saved his life, right? And so now, ostensibly because of the gothic bills, but really because of this princess, he is back to sort of one good turn deserves another. He is going to help her. She played this special role in his life, and you finally get to figure out she she saved him. He was lying in the garden just to be found or to die. You know, it seems like she's kind of fallen in love with him as she's gotten older, but he just sort of has like a special place for her in his heart almost because when he's fighting off the count at one point, he calls the count a Lolita lover because he's like, you, Mm. you're trying to like rob the cradle. Like you can't just be with this young girl. There's this weird sort of relationship he has to her in the past when she was a child and he was also a, a much younger man. It's not really shown at this point to be romantic on his side. He has this significant encounter with her, but it wasn't a romantic encounter. Uh, Yeah, it did still feel creepy. Oh, no, I'm not here to say that it it isn't (laughs) creepy moving forward. I think it's just sort of the reveal of like, oh, she's grown up is not like I had a romantic relationship with this child. It was like, oh, this child saved my life. Now she's 
ostensibly an adult. But does it ever say her age? It's like 16 or 18. No, they never say her age. You know, in talking about it now, okay, I can look back on it and go, okay, yeah, I get kind of how, you know, special place in his heart. And that's why he's there to save her. And that's why we're doing all this. At the time in watching the movie, it didn't read that way to me. It just mm-hmm. read as like these sort of like lecherous dudes who are after this younger girl. And Lupin's was even creepier because he knew her when she was really little. And he was like, wow, she's filled out. You know, <laughs> hey, she she grew up. So I get yeah. it. I get it. But it does still feel a little not no, great. I, I think you should feel weird about it. Like, I'm happy that you felt weird about it because I also felt weird about it. It was kind of a relief to me seeing the line where he's like yelling at the count for being quote unquote a Lolita lover because I'm just like, oh, you recognize that this is like a creepy old man and you're trying to get her out of a bad situation, right? And so we can just explore a little bit more about the ending and, and how they handle this. But there is like anyone who's watching this film should come in being aware that the dynamic, it's a little weird. I'll just leave it right. at mm. It is what it is. The problem is now that Lupin has to find a way to undo everything that's going on by tomorrow because tomorrow is when the wedding is. He gets a means of doing that or at least an indication of a means of doing that by Fujiko who has left behind a note for him. It's a newspaper clipping that says, hey, you know, tomorrow at this wedding where the count is going to be marrying the princess, it's going to be officiated by an archbishop from the Vatican. Oh, really? Light bulb goes off in Lupin's head. He has an idea. He has a plan for maybe how he can work this to his advantage. So, Zenigata. We left Zenigata in Paris. Zenigata had had to turn around and go back to Japan. That was going to be the plan. Zenigata at his office gets a message from Fujiko. So, Fujiko has left a message for Lupin. Fujiko has left a message for Zenigata. And the message that Fujiko has left is, hey, you know that guy Lupin that you're looking for? He is planning to be at the Cagliostro wedding tomorrow. He's going to do a big thing there. If you want him, if you want to come and get him, now is the time to do it. And I know they had this truce that they had put on. Hey, we're going to be truce until all of this is over. Well, basically, it's over for Zenigata in any other thing he could do. So for him... This is the moment to break the truce. He can still get Lupin. He can get his forces mobilized and get there. I get the sense that Zenigata, who has been sort of shackled by these people at Interpol who tell him he can't go into the sovereign state, has this realization via Fujiko, oh, I can get into the sovereign state if I'm chasing Lupin. If I blame it on Lupin, that's my end to get in here and undo all of the counterfeiting. Yeah. The archbishop is stuck in traffic trying to get to the (laughs) ceremony, which I'm like, that was poor planning on their part. They really (laughs) He's arriving a little late. He's really cutting it close, that archbishop. But, you know, he's recognized by a local, asked to bless his lamb. And and the driver's like, hey, you're a local. Like, can you get us to the castle faster? Like, we're going to miss the ceremony. It's very embarrassing. And so this local climbs in the car. He's like, yeah, I know a shortcut. And, you know, knowing Lupin's penchant for costumes, you kind of have a hint that maybe this isn't a normal local. But meanwhile, Zenigata has a bunch more cops again who are also going up the mountain. Like everyone's about to converge in a big way. Uh, All of Zenigata's guys are pushing the van up the mountain, which I love. And you're right. You've got these kind of multiple parties again arriving at the castle the same way that Zenigata's forces arrived and the gendarme were there and Lupin was there to begin with. Now we have the archbishop showing up. We have Zenigata's people and we have a third group, which is a TV crew that is also arriving at the castle to broadcast this royal wedding worldwide. And so they all arrive at the same time, Zenigata, the TV crew, and the archbishop's car. 
And we're going to talk about the exciting conclusion to this movie after this. Hi, I'm Josh Dassel, producer and host of the Subgenre Podcast, and right now you're listening to my voice. But did you know that this same space is available for you to market your business, sell your product, or promote your favorite cause or organization to our audience of smart, pop culture-savvy listeners with extraordinary taste in what to listen to? Visit subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre to inquire about what we offer. Ad space is available on this and future episodes of Subgenre and The Pickup Shot, as well as our entire back catalog of episodes. We'd love to do business with you. That's subgenrepodcast.com and click the contact link under Advertise on Subgenre. Keep listening, and maybe next time we'll hear your new ad right here. You're back listening to Subgenre. We're talking about Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. Let's get back into the last part of this film. We start it at midnight. How do we know it's midnight? There is a large clock tower that stands at this castle near the North Tower or on the North Tower. There's a clock tower and the big hands on it have come together. It is midnight. And what is going on at midnight? Well, we pan down and go underground again down into the catacombs of this castle. And there is some sort of very dark, very disturbing underground procession happening. People in black outfits, fire and torches and all of that. Something is happening. It's very cult-like. Feels oh, like yeah. It's sort of like this creepy, dark stone castle hallway. But honestly, what also makes it even creepier is that the princess is in this small chamber and the count arrives and he has a mask now, which I don't know why, and then a large cape. And he tells her, it is time for light and dark to become one, just like the words on the ring said. That's a pickup line if I've ever heard one for a count of a duchy. I guess if it works, it works. You know, it's a little dark there. But they, they're also still like, they march under swords to get to the chapel. Well, like, look, people look, are yeah. holding swords up. And at this point, we have no idea that that's where they're headed. It looks like they could be going to a seance. It looks like she could be taken to be executed. We don't know what's going on. But what happens and what we find out very quickly, of course, is that they are taking this very scenic route to get to the chapel that is full of people and a TV crew waiting for them to show up and get married. They march themselves down to the front where the archbishop, of course, is waiting to marry them. The archbishop performs the ceremony and calls for the rings. The part that I found very weird when I was watching this, which we will figure out in a second, is the archbishop saying to the princess, if you do not object to marrying him, just stay silent. It's not a tell me if things are going to be wrong and if you don't want to get married, I object. Just keep your mouth shut if you're fine with it. Really? Nothing? Okay, great. You're going to get married. At this point, though, the archbishop calls for the rings, but a voice objects. Yeah, there is a voice. There is a voice that speaks up and says, "Uh, excuse me, I have an objection. (laughs) Verbally objects and very dramatically, the altar behind them crashes down. Everything comes down. And why does it come down? Why does the altar come crashing down? Because Lupin and Jigen and Goman are all there to save the princess, but they say that they have come to speak on behalf of the dead in the underground dungeon. Everybody assumes they were dead. And so here they've reappeared in the chapel and they're kind of pretending to be ghosts for a minute, which freaks out the audience, doesn't necessarily freak out the count. You know, I mean, we love a dramatic entrance. We also love how very unflappable this count has been this whole movie. But it's interesting, too, because we have to 
remember, this is a royal wedding. So all of the people in the audience are dignitaries. You have people from other countries. All these people are freaking out because like what underground dungeon? The dead where? You know, these are like zombie-like people. And, you know, Lupin is calling out, I want Clarice. I want to take her with me. The crowd's like, these are zombies. There are goons that come and stop the TV broadcast. Yeah, this is all being broadcast worldwide. There's a TV announcer up there essentially like play-by-play. Get like, okay, the altar has come down and now there's monsters arriving from the dungeon to stop the wedding. Xenagod is able to watch this from outside. He sees what's happening. Oh my goodness, it's happening in the chapel. He races for the castle. Lupin, of course, realizes and I think maybe says out loud that the reason that the princess didn't object is because the princess has been drugged. Well, duh. She's kind of a zombie standing around. She couldn't say no. That's why they phrased it that way. Here come the goons for Lupin, all of them with pikes, and essentially jab him with 16 or 17 pikes in what looks like the end for Lupin, but of course, it's not Lupin, it's a dummy. Because Lupin loves a disguise and a dramatic entrance. It's a dummy that gets stabbed, and the dummy explodes. <laughs> like, it can't just be a dummy. It can't just be a bait and switch. It's gotta be a bait switch and explode. Well, you got all those extra grenades lying around. You gotta do something with them. <laughs> so it, like, scatters counterfeit bills that were inside the dummy, apparently. And all of this goes into the audience, and Lupin's like, this is payment for the rings, which then the archbishop grabs and of course the archbishop is Lupin. Of course he is. He tears off the disguise. You know, again, I say this a lot, a lot of Scooby-Doo moments in here, but it's the the reveal where Lupin rips off his mask. He has been the archbishop the whole time. He has both of the rings. He opens his cape at that moment. It's not enough that we've blown up the dummy of him and scattered counterfeit bills everywhere so that all the dignitaries can see what's going on. He opens his cape and it's full of already lit rockets, like dozens of rockets lit as if he's showing us watches in Times Square, like he has these rockets under there, which then, boom, uh, uh, fly in all directions. They're basically fireworks, but they shoot out of the jacket, knock back all of the goons so that uh, he can make a run for it, and here comes a battle. You can see why Fujiko and Lupin have a history, or maybe this is just a thief thing, because under her dress, she has, like, a giant arsenal, and under his archbishop robes are already lit rockets, which is just the most amazing thing I've heard all day. Of all the fantastical things in this film, of all the unbelievable things the animation can get away with in this film, that to me is the most. That's more than what she takes out from under her dress. That's more than the auto gyro that's on fire that manages to stay aloft. That's more than climbing the North Tower and I was going to say freebasing. Freebasing is not the right term. Uh, (laughs) Free-soloing. Free-soloing up the tower. It's more than all of that dude has lit rockets in his jacket. Also, I feel the need to say This is a Scooby-Doo moment. It's also a Mission Impossible moment and battle just going on in the middle of a royal wedding with all these dignitaries. Which gets even worse because here comes Zenigata with all of his cops that are showing up. Remember how they didn't like the gendarmes to begin with? Well, the gendarmes are there fighting and here comes Zenigata's cops and boom, they all come together in the middle of this battle as well. And so he arrives just as Lupin grabs the drugged princess, he escapes and the uh, TV announcer in the midst of all of this uses the microphone to smack away the goons doing God knows what to the audio. Remember back when the the archbishop showed up in the car and it was actually Lupin? Well, when the TV crew showed up a long time ago in their van, that was Fuji Cakes. So she is there with the camera, not just to broadcast this ceremony to the whole world, but she's grabbed the camera and is following these guys down the hidden staircase down into the basement where the hidden printing presses are and she's broadcasting this sucker to the whole world. Hey, everybody, look, here's where the 
Gothic bills came from. Also in possibly the poorest performance, Zenigata, it's so well animated and voice acted because he's like, gasp, counterfeit bills? Who knew that this would be here after I was chasing Lupin? How crazy. Like, it was just so clearly set up so that he could storm the castle, quite literally. Don't they comment about that back at Interpol watching this on the TV? I think they're, they're like, what a ham. Like, this guy, what a, what a performance. I also love it when good actors do bad acting. It's it's amazing to see them like draw someone who is very mechanically being like, oh, I had no idea that here are all of the world's currencies. Here's Japan's. Here's America's. So they found the printing presses. They have shown the world the printing presses. Outside, Lupin and the princess still have to get away. And so they are running across the Roman aqueduct to get to the other side or wherever they can to get away from what's going on inside the chapel. But the Count, of course, is on their heels. He's on their heels on that same boat that we saw at the beginning of the movie. Him and uh, his sidekick are on the boat and giving chase. At the other side of this long Roman aqueduct that they've been running across, up on the clock tower, there is the crest where we have the two goats. Remember, we talked about the rings had the goats on it. There's the silver ring with the silver goat and the gold ring with the gold goat. Here is that crest way up in the sky. It has the Gothic letters on it that we saw before. The what is it? Binding light and shadow, tolling the hours as the goat on high into whose eyes face the sun. I bid you place me. There's a clue written on this about what you're supposed to do. And of course, the princess knows them by heart. When it's like, it's time for light and shadow to become one. The answer to the riddle is put the rings together. Like it's something yeah. that if the count knew, he could have done it a long time ago. And all of these words that you just spoke are on the border of the rings when placed together. And so it's just like this thing where you're like, it was under his nose the whole time. But you're right. The princess knows these words by heart. It's something that's been passed down in her family. And so now they have this instruction, which is basically like tolling the hours as the goat on high. Okay, that's the clock. Into whose eyes facing the sun, I bid you place me. So those are the rings. But they're at the base of this clock tower and that's very high up, right? They've got a climb ahead of them. And while Lupin may be able to climb the outside, the princess certainly cannot. So what do you do when you have to get to the top of the clock tower and you've got a count on your heels that's firing machine guns? You escape yourself into the clock tower itself. And that is where our hero and the princess find themselves is in essentially the guts of a clock tower. Giant moving gears and cogs and things going in all kinds of different directions, not to mention lasers. There are lasers again. There's always lasers. You There's gotta have always lasers. lasers. And so Lupin is having to maneuver himself and the princess up these different gears as they're trying to get up to the top. And of course, the Count's men are giving chase here. Because they set this up, the lasers and the gears by the way that they had to get into the castle the first time, right? Like they almost got caught up in the gears when they swam through the aqueduct. And so this time they're going through all these huge clock gears and it's like a daring escape. But of course, because the Count's men are chasing them, Lupin takes the princess, tries to get her somewhere safe, and he just grabs an enormous wrench and starts smashing at these gears, just sending them like raining down on these goons. These are enormous, enormous, enormous gears that, you know, some of them are turning left to right and some of them are flat and turning around in a circle and all of them are turning the hands of the clock at the top. So as he's smashing these gears and they're coming down, these are big 
pieces falling down on the goons below. And there is one moment in this film of a goon trying to chase Lupin up one of these things. And it's horrendously disturbing because while you don't see it, you see right up until the moment where one of these goons gets crushed in the gears as he takes up one false step. It's one of those things, too, where you're talking about, oh, princess, you've got blood on your hands. Like, what about Lupin, man? Like, he has been sending these man-sized gears down to hit everyone, and then he takes a route that this guy can't follow, and he is brutally crushed. And the Count is there, too, right? It's not just the goons. The Count is there, too. He happens to see, while his goons are busy doing what it is that they do, he sees where the princess is. She's up top somewhere. And so he's got to kind of ride this gear, to grab this gear, to ride this other gear, to get up to the top to get her. And all of this moving around on gears and this whole set piece of the movie, I loved. This was one of my favorite parts of the entire movie because it felt very Harold Lloyd. It Mm. felt very silent movie-ish. It's both drama and comedy at the same time and and I guess action of grabbing these gears and swinging from one place to another and stuff. It's something about it really enjoyable. You're right. It's also like very Buster Keaton. Like there's these big physical setups like you're saying. And so you get this fight scene too where the Count and Lupin are standing on gears that are going at different speeds and they're trying to fight each other and that's just one of the best I think physical moments you get in in the movie is is just trying to like use the speed of your gears to fight your opponent what I love also in this film and is I think a, a thing in a lot of Studio Ghibli films is that nobody's dumb like I think that none of the main characters are dumb I think that Zenigata you know very clearly has found this loophole to like expose this giant counterfinger ring. Like obviously Fujiko is a big mastermind character and the count here also proves himself like an intelligent enemy. Like he is able to navigate and able to fight Lupin and sort of match him at every turn until of course he discovers Clarice. Lupin's weakness here is the princess. He's got to save her. The count has to get her. You've got both of these guys going after her where she is up high. What she chooses to to do is to climb out of this clock tower. Now that she's at the top, she's got nowhere else to go. And she steps outside of it onto the arms of this clock we were describing before. This giant clock, giant arms pointed at whatever time it is, you know, three in the morning or something. And she's standing on one of these arms and is walking further and further out towards the end of it. And here comes the count after her out on the arm, pushing her further and further out until she's got nowhere left to go. So Lupin comes out trying to bargain for the princess's life. I will give you the rings. I will tell you the secret. Just let her go. He says, I'll tell you the secret. Just let her go. And then just proceeds to tell him the secret without him letting the girl go. Hey, dude, you know, if you take those rings, you know, that thing above us and you put the ring rings in the eyes of the goat, it's going to reveal your treasure. Just do that. Okay, will you let her go now? Otherwise, you know, if you don't let her go, I guess he has the bargaining chip of the rings. Otherwise, if you don't let her go, I'm just going to drop these and they're going to fall on the lake and you're never going to have them. I feel like nobody has been great at bargaining with the Count so far. Like, there's been a lot of people just kind of like, oh, like, you have the power here, but... Either way, he does have the rings and the Count's like, yeah, yeah, like, sure, sure, sure. And then fires rockets at Lupin again with the rockets. Like, we got the the skylights, we got the lasers, we got the rockets. And he knocks him off the tower, but he grabs just a hand on the clock hands. 
and hangs on. Count goes and just gets the rings, just easy peasy. So we've got Lupin dangling from the arms of this clock. We've got the princess on the other arm, far out at the end, about to be pushed off to her mortal doom down in the lake somewhere. We've got the Count in the middle of him who has gotten the rings. So when he fired the rockets, the rings flew up in the air. He grabbed the rings, whatever, retrieved those. So he's got those somewhere in the middle. And he is almost victorious, the Count. He's almost victorious. He's got everything he wants here. And he's about to shoot Lupin again. When the princess again comes to Lupin's rescue, she grabs the Count and kind of does this big moment of heroism where she's sort of sacrificing herself. Like she grabs the Count and pulls both of them off of this clock, or at least she's trying to pull both of them off of this clock. And here she goes falling down off the tower and it looks like everything is done for for the princess. Clarice doesn't have a whole bunch of character development in this film, but she's also not weak or dumb. And it's kind of a lovely thing to see because so far she has saved Lupin's life in the film twice and in flashback once. That's a hat trick right there. But it's also like, not leave our listeners on a cliffhanger. They are falling off of this clock. But what's this? The Count, he has a sword and he jams it into the clock. And so now Lupin's hanging on by his hands and the Count's hanging on by his sword and the princess is hanging on to the Count. The upper body strength displayed in this movie is insane. It's, it's work out more, Josh. I do too. It's awful. <laughs> It's awful. But the Count has managed to save himself. Lupin is holding on by his fingernails. The princess is holding on as long as she can, but the Count kicks her free. Up, oh, don't need you anymore. Boom. She's in free fall. She's heading to her doom. So what do you do if you're Lupin? You let go too. And you go falling towards her in midair and trying to do something to arrest her fall before she hits the lake. Honestly, at this point, there's nothing he can really do. They're both kind of head down, but the best he can do is sort of make them a little bit aerodynamic. They just plunge into the lake. We're not really sure what's happened to them. The Count, meanwhile, showing again, an enormous display of upper body strength, (laughs) has pulled himself up from like a one-handed sword grip to go and climb and put the rings into the eyes of the goat on the tower. This is what the whole movie for him has been about is I got to marry this lady so that I can get the rings so that I can put them in the eyes of this goat at the tower. Okay, I don't have to marry her. I can kick her off the clock. I still have the ring. This is my destiny. I am going to go do this now. Up he goes to put the rings into the eyes. But when he does this, he doesn't really get the result he's he's thinking he's going to get, Josh. Um, (laughs) that's, That's a nice way of saying it. He places the rings into the eyes and something does happen. The clock kicks to life as if it's going to reveal a secret. What he has not planned on is that in order to reveal the secret, both hands on this clock have to come up and point up to midnight again. And so here they come from both sides like a pair of scissors and whap, crunch this guy to death between the two arms of this giant clock. The count is no more. It is such like a a shocking moment for a viewer of the film too, because he has been your villain for so long and he really is just undone by his own quest for treasure. Like he just did not have this piece of information and now he is a part of that clock tower, but also... That clock tower is not going to be around for long because part of this treasure reveal is the tower starts to collapse. It's coming down piece by piece and it's coming down quick and it's coming down in full view of everybody there for the wedding. So everybody has sort of been chased out of the chapel. They're hanging out outside. And here comes this tower coming down, which, of course, this is going to be the center of attention. It falls to the ground. It essentially collapses into the lake. 
when it collapses into the lake, it reveals something. Okay, so again, layers on layers on layers in this. It reveals something that we didn't know was there, which is a spillway. And out of that spillway come tons and tons and tons of water. All of a sudden, we're realizing this clock tower was essentially damming part of this lake. And like you're saying, tons of water is coming out. We're all wondering, like, what is it going to reveal? And everyone is watching, like you said. So we kind of get to get reactions from a lot of people including almost forgotten at this point, Jigen and Goemon, who have been fighting this whole time for their lives to try and help Lupin and the princess get away. The water is on a destruction path. It's filling up and overflowing the lake. All that water is going into this big, beautiful castle that we've had before, and it's flooding the castle. Everything that was something to the Count is essentially being put into ruins, but it's being done with a purpose because after the floodwaters have poured out of wherever they were coming from and have flooded the castle, Lupin and the princess emerge. They've been hiding down in the sewer. Remember, they took that plunge into the lake. So they've been hiding down in the sewer. They emerge into the nice morning light to find that all of that water that flooded out, if you walk through that spillway to the other side, it had been covering the treasure. And the treasure was a giant ancient Roman city that had been hidden for all these years beneath the lake. And, you know, Lupin makes a, a great quip about it because it's too big to fit in his pocket. It's not a treasure that he could steal. It's a treasure for all mankind. <laughs> it's an interesting ending, too, because you've been seeking this thing. There's all this money. There's all these things. But it turns out the treasure is just history. It like, was inside us the whole time. We have to deal with the aftermath of everything. We can't just bask in this sort of wonderful historical treasure that apparently their ancestors knew were there around 1517. We also have to deal with the fact that this is an international incident and Interpol planes are arriving, paratroopers are arriving, and now they, they don't really get to spend this moment of victory together. The princess and Lupin really have to make a decision of what comes next. Just to pause for a second, do you think Lupin knew what the deal was before all of this went down or somewhere in the middle of all of this going down? Do you think he figured out what the treasure was and what the thing meant, or was this a surprise to him too? I don't have any indication that he knew what it was but I do think that he was never planning to really steal what it was. Like, he's not really there to gain the treasure. He's there to, I guess you could say, help the princess or stop the counterfeit bills because what's it worth to steal counterfeit bills? Right. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? He does go to the gazebo by the lake at the beginning of the movie. Honestly, by the end of the movie, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell if it's something he knew all along or if it's something that, you know, he found out with all of us at the end and was just like, yeah, it's for the ages. It's I'll leave it here. I wasn't planning to steal anything anyway. I don't know. But I think his reaction to all of this at the end is both alternately a really nice one, mm -hmm. but also one that I can see if you're a fan of the other version of Lupin, who's uh, kind of a little more dastardly, maybe that isn't as satisfying a reaction. Honestly, Josh, my question is more for the ancestors here. They kind of try to explain it in the movie. They're just like, oh, we're just going to like save this treasure for the future or something. But like, why flood this ancient city and why make a sort of Riddler-esque series of clues to get to this ancient historical treasure. To me, that was the thing is I'm like, oh, I love ruins. And also you've kind of set it up by the fact that there's a Roman aqueduct. 
But like, to me, it's almost an unsatisfying choice of treasure to the extent that I, as a viewer, I mean, like, here's the thing. I enjoyed the movie, but like I, as a viewer, I'm kind of like, why did you hide this in the first place? Yeah. Were they ruins before you flooded them? You're not going to preserve them better by putting them in a lake. <laughs> like, that's not going <laughs> to be the best choice here. <laughs> well, regardless, this is what was under the lake. This is the payoff. There is a Roman city underneath it, and it's a treasure for everyone. Hooray. It's beautifully drawn. It's beautiful. Beautifully drawn. It's wonderful. And our movie begins to wrap itself up. And so we will too. Lupin, of course, with Interpol arriving all over the place, knows that his time is very short. He has to get away or he has to choose to stay and you know, essentially get caught or something or figure out how he's going to stay with the princess. Well, we established earlier, it's not a romantic relationship that he was wanting with her. It's something a little bit different. And so that gives him maybe a little distance to make his decision of needing to or or wanting to leave. In addition to that, we find out, hey, you know, that groundskeeper guy we've been talking to the whole time. It seems as if perhaps this is some grandfatherly figure. Haha, finally, my animation knowledge and my anime knowledge in particular. In a lot of anime, you'll call someone grandfather as like a sort of an unaffectionate term. Mm. So I didn't take that to mean that he was her biological grandfather as much as he was like an old man who was special to her. It did seem to be like a really tender reunion though. So like I could have definitely misinterpreted that. No, I I think you're... Yeah, I think you're interpreting it correctly. I think he's the older person who she looks up to, who cares for her, who she Mm -hmm. cares about enough to give him Carl the dog. And so there's a relationship here and he's a vestige of the relationship maybe that she had with her parents before they were killed in the fire. Either way, he is there. He can help take care of her going forward. And so there is another reason that Lupin maybe does not necessarily need to be there. And so he takes this moment where he knows that she's going to be okay and jumps in the car with Jigen and Goemon and they speed away over the horizon. And this is after the princess has, you know, sort of realized maybe he's starting to leave and said, look, you know, I could go with you. I could learn to be a thief. I'm fine with trying to figure that out. Let's do this thing together. And Lupin has the moment where he's kind of got to let her down easy and be like, you know, you don't want to do that. You'll get dirty. This is really the thing that I think helped me define their relationship as this scene because she's ready to throw it all away for him. And he's like, don't. She clearly has developed like at least a crush on him. I mean, he's the charming guy who saved her. Right. But he's very much has a more realistic view of things. And it's clear that he cares for her, but he's not asking for that. And we also get this extra hint about her feelings for him because as Lupin is in this car and speeding off, you know, towards the horizon and waving goodbye and I'll see you again someday, it's right that moment that Inspector Zenigata appears, you know, a day late and a dollar short as he always is in trying to catch Lupin. Ah, man, I missed him by that much. And the princess knows that he's there looking for Lupin. She knows he's going to go after Lupin and says, don't go after him. He didn't steal anything. He stole nothing from me. To which Zenigata gets his finishing line in this and says, oh, yes, he did, baby. He stole your heart. It's a good finishing line, but like that part, I was like, ah, I feel a little weird about it again. <laughs> but it is like, you know, the way that everything's been set up. It, you do get an interesting moment with the princess where she's like, I feel like I've known Lupin for a long time. And you realize that because she was a child, she actually didn't remember saving him. This is all for her, an interaction that they've had as adults 
And I feel like that even clarifies her perspective even more, right? It's just sort of like, he knows that she saved him and he feels like he owes her and has this special relationship, but she doesn't. It really contextualizes the first skylight moment when he like breaks into her room and is like, I'm here to save you. And she's like, I cannot trust you. <laughs> I have no idea me. who you are, man. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he's running away. He's got her heart. He's got no treasure, but uh, Lupin is in a car and speeding away. And he is in this final shot, really back in what is his element. He's riding in the car. He's a little melancholy at first. Like, you know, it's kind of sad that he's leaving or whatever. You know, Jigen says, you know, you could stay. And Lupin's like, nah, I don't think I can do that. And we end this movie a little bit where we started it, which is with Hot Pursuit. It starts with Fuji Cakes uh, riding up on her motorbike beside them. You know, you had talked about you need the master printing plates to prove mm-hmm. that things have went on. Hey, guess what Fujiko took? She's got the master printing plates, which we can assume was kind of her mission the whole time being a spy in the castle. She was looking for those suckers. She's got them. Lupin's like, hey, you know, as long as you're printing money, can I go with you? Nope. Sorry. Off goes Fuji Cakes to her next adventure. She speeds away. And that leaves Lupin and Jigen and Goemon in this car, the little yellow Fiat, speeding away from the cops on their tail. The chase is back on. Lupin is kind of back where he belongs and seems happy to be so. Yeah, Lupin is Lupin again. And that is perfectly well and good because he has solved this injustice going on in the world. And now he can go back to being this suave rogue who's going to go rob another casino or something like that. He is a gentleman thief after all. And that's the end of The Castle of Cagliostro, a movie that has a lot of twists and turns that has been a lot of fun to talk about. And now it's time for You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is our quiz segment on this show. Mary, you may be familiar with this from last season. I am going to give you three new questions having to do either directly or tangentially with this film. And uh, you are going to answer these multiple choice questions to the best of your ability. Today, you are playing for your own auto gyrocopter guaranteed to absorb massive gunfire and keep on flying. I hope that is worth playing for. How did you know I have many gun toting enemies? Don't we all? <laughs> okay, oh. let's ask some questions here. Are you ready? Here we go. I am ready. Okay, question number one. Besides being the acclaimed director and co-writer of The Castle of Cagliostro, Miyazaki is also known as a co-founder of the famed Japanese animation house Studio Ghibli. What is a Ghibli? Is it A, a World War II era military plane, B, a type of adorable Japanese pancake, or C, a nonsense word meant to evoke joy. You've really hit me with one that I should know the answer to, but I actually don't. I know he has done a couple of films that, I know he's done at least one that is plain related, but I think I'm gonna go nonsense word. No, I'm sorry. Actually, the answer was A. A Ghibli is a World War II era military plane. It's actually an Italian plane that was used during Italy's occupation of Africa during World War II. And according to the company that made it, the word Ghibli kind of translates in Italian to hot desert wind. And so uh, when they were forming the animation studio, I think Miyazaki and his partner said that they wanted to blow a new wind through the anime industry. And so thereby, studio. Ghibli. I really undid myself on that one. I was really going strong and it's okay. I'm back on track. Let's go again. Let's try it again with question number two. Here we go. In addition to being the home to some of the most wondrous and super adorable things in the world, Japan is also home to some of the most highly functional. Which of the following facts about Japanese technology is true? Is it A, nearly all smartphones sold in Japan are waterproof? 
B. Nearly every car sold in Japan includes a noodle warmer. Or C. Nearly every home in Japan is programmed to know your name. Okay, so it's noodle warming cars, houses that know your name, and, and waterproof, waterproof smartphones, correct. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, I know which one I want to be true. I don't think it's houses that know your name because I think that a lot of construction in Japan happened before we had that technology. I also know that we import a lot of Japanese vehicles and I have never once been able to keep my noodles warm. Therefore, I am going to go with waterproof phones. That is correct. Due to the prevalence of bathing culture in Japan. So if you've ever heard of an onsen, you know, it's sort of the Japanese version of a sauna. Love their baths in Japan. And so due to the prevalence of bathing culture and couple that with the desire to use your technology while you're in one of those baths, water resistant phones have been the norm for about a decade in Japan. And about 90 to 95 percent of the phones sold there are waterproof. I feel kind of bad for the other like 5% of phones. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, good job. You you are one and one. You have one more question to go. Get this right. And you have won the auto gyro. Are you ready for your last question? Question three. I think I'm already doing better than last time. I am very ready. Let's go. Okay, here we go. The manga slash anime universe of Lupin the Third has a lot of well-known and well-loved characters. What character outside of the Lupin the Third universe is Lupin also credited with enabling its creation? Is it A, action movie hero Jason Bourne, B, bumbling cartoon detective Inspector Gadget, or C, Days of Our Lives heartthrob Steve Patch Johnson? Oh, this is such a good question. Okay, okay. I am going to attempt to cheat this question, not by Google, but by remembering that you had compared uh, Zenigata's get up to Inspector Gadget earlier in this episode. So I'm going to attempt to say Inspector Gadget also due to his like little wrist thing, the like grappling hook at the wrist. I'm going to go Inspector Gadget. That is B, I believe. That is correct. It is kind of in a roundabout way, too. So I think the short version, as I understand it, is back in 1982, the company behind Lupin, TMS Entertainment, behind the Lupin anime, they were going to team up with the, I think they're in an American cartoon studio, Deke, right, who did a lot of the different cartoons to do a Lupin the Third spinoff. And so it would have been called Lupin the Eighth. It would have followed Lupin's descendant far into the future. It would have been aimed at a younger audience. But of course, the LeBlanc estate who created the Lupin character that Lupin the Third was based on. There were some copyright issues. They stepped in. The project fell through. But Deke had already put so much money into the deal that they needed to do something. And so thereby they created the Inspector Gadget character and TMS did the animation. That is just a part of my childhood that has been recontextualized and I love it. And also I feel like I only got that question correct because I am a good listener and I will take that. <laughs> thank you, elementary school teachers. And thank my mom for that because I love it. Now that I think about it, Zenigata's outfit is Inspector Gadget-esque. Congratulations, Mary Thurman. You have won. You can't handle the truth. You have won the autogyro. I'm very proud of you. And coming off of that victory, it is the perfect time for rave rental or refund. 
In Rave Rental or Refund, this is our last comments on the film, our last impressions. Is it a rave? The best thing that we've ever seen? Would we see it again? Is it something we want to watch every day? Is it a rental? Yeah, it's pretty decent. Uh, I might catch it if I can find it somewhere. Or is it a refund? Nope, never watching this one again. Give me back my money. Mary Thurman, Rave Rental or Refund? I think if you're a fan of animation, you have to, like, this is Miyazaki's debut. This is his debut feature-length film. Like, this has to be a rave. Like, you have to see how his style is both present and also developed and even improved from here. So like to an animation fan, rave. And even if you're not a big animation fan, at least a rental. I think it's a romp. It has got such great animation and design and action. Honestly, 1979 film, I feel like the pacing holds up. Still super fun watch. It's a fun film. It is a romp. I don't think it made it to the level of a rave for me and I think that's my own shortcoming, not the films, just because (laughs) there are certain things that speak to you and there are certain things that don't. And this one I enjoyed as a movie. I don't think it's a movie that I would necessarily come back to all of the time but still a really good film. So from you, it is a rave. From me, I'm going to say it is a rental. Either way, it's a really fun movie. Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. Been a good time talking about it. I know we're done with Rave Rental Refund, but I do need to say, this is obviously, since it's his first directorial debut, this is not Miyazaki's best film. But like you said, super fun. So I'm going to let that go. I'm gonna, I know that segment was already over and I hopped back <laughs> into it so you can cut this if you'd like to. You have strong opinions and that is why we like you here to talk about this. <laughs> and so the person with strong opinions, this is your chance. Uh, tease yourself. Where can people find you? Uh, what are you doing? What's fun? What's coming up? Plug yourself. Let me put on my Mary shamelessly plugging herself voice. Okay. <clears throat> if you're looking for more Mary Thurman, please check her out on Twitter at Mary E. Thurman, or she does post art sometimes on Instagram at M. Thurman Art. In general, though, she's going to be found at Noggin trying to teach the babies how to read with cool cartoons. Thank you so much, Josh Dazzle, for having me on this podcast. Hey, thanks for being here. We'll see you in season three. Looking forward to it. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Noggin animation producer and writer, Mary Thurman. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love this show and you need some more, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or pretty much wherever else you choose to listen. And if you can, leave us a five-star review. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support Subgenre with your donation from your account, please, not others that you've stolen from. You'll find the link to do it, more about our show, and all of our archived episodes from Season 1 at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Come back soon for our next episode of Subgenre Season 2 and some more charming thief movies. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.